Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets, as always. I am joined by the Predator, Pastor Christopher Gillespie. Glad to be here again. I am the co-host, El Sabaje, Pastor Donald O'Reilly. That works. And it works. That's what my family calls me, so it's either that or Techno Viking. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'll put that in the show notes. That's That's a YouTube video that will take you down a really... Interesting oh video my. rabbit hole. The All Techno right. Viking. Yep. He is hilarious. Yep. It's in the show notes. Oh he dances like he can't dance anymore. I don't even think he's a Viking. He's a German, right? But he's dressed uh, like is a he Viking. German or Swede? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe pre- well, you're, you're right. He does dance like there's no... That's Yeah, he could be a German for sure. I think he's a German <laughs> dressed like a Viking. That's the vibe for yeah. sure. A little Gaul, a little yeah. Norse. <laughs> It's fantastic. <laughs> uh, this week on the show, we are reading from a book by F. Edward Krantz. <laughs> Here comes the title. An Essay on the Development of Luther's Thought on Justice, Law, and Society. Ah. Exactly. And exhale. <laughs> Luther's Thought in size 48 font, and then mm. all the other stuff is size 28 or something. But this was originally published in 1959 by Harvard University Press and then republished in 1987 uh, by Sigler Press. And then the second edition, which would technically be the third edition, was published in 1998 by Sigler Press. Got it. And although it's an obscure book, Heiko Obermann, the um, Luther scholar who wrote Luther, God Between Man and the Devil, a best-selling book, actually, mm-hmm. uh, wrote a blurb for it. Him and Eric Gritch both wrote blurbs for the book. Nice. And let's see, who wrote, I think, uh, oh, I know who wrote the introduction, too. Let me see, Scott Hendricks wrote the introduction. And Scott Hendricks is another well-regarded Luther scholar. From our last generation of, well, the almost the final generation of Luther scholars. Yeah, I mean, it was a different time where you could do a scholarship on a, on an individual like Luther, uh, yeah. in kind of an objective way and not get all caught up in um you know which which luther lutheran people group mm-hmm. are you a part of which <laughs> which uh what do you want to say click no tribe click, tribe yeah. yeah tribe well after the war germany was opened up obviously and mm-hmm. that opened the door to students going over there and scholars going over there and raiding the libraries of europe and getting lost in the stacks and going and doing research in places like Wolfenbüttel, and um, the Dr. Oliver Olson, who the Flaschia scholar who I worked for for a number of years, mm-hmm. that's what he would do in the summer. Every summer for cheapers, twenty plus years, he would go and spend three months in Wolfenbüttel and just go every day to the library. Wow. Near the library in there on a first name basis, and he would just spend all of his time having uh, all of these rare manuscripts brought out to him, first editions primary text and he would just read through them and do research and just write because write no cards write no cards and then come back after three months or so with a suitcase full of no cards this was before smartphones and the internet that's how you did it so that's how you end up like mr krantz here writing books like nicholas of kuza and the renaissance correct or reorientations of western thought from antiquity Mm -hmm. to the renaissance yeah (laughs) yeah doing one of those survey kind of books it this is just my opinion, but obviously it's just my opinion. But I think also it was a different level of scholarship because you had to go and you had to really earn it. Mm-hmm. You had to you had to work for that research. You had to go to Germany. You had to go to the libraries, which means you had to know German. Yeah. 
And not just current contemporary German. You had to know medieval German, Hochdeutsch, all the different variations of the dialects in the 16th and 15th century, 17th century. Yeah. You had to be able to understand Graf, Zempel, and Font, which is, oh, that's That's rough. what I'm going to say, Fraktur. And- yeah. And you really had to earn it. And if someone made a reference to something, you had to go find that reference. It wasn't easily available to you. You might not have even been in the same library. You might be in Berlin and have to go to Erfurt or be in Erfurt and have to go to Paris or something to find the book. Versus now where everything is, for the most part, readily available on the internet. And even Mm -hmm. if you can't get it on the internet, you can order it via the internet. I do this with the Concordia Historical Society. If there's a primary text that I need, I just call them, they Xerox it, send me a copy, it's eight bucks. Exactly. And I'm not saying that the level of scholarship isn't the same, but I think the the drive to have to go and do that and the, the discipline, that's the word I'm looking for. It's discipline. The discipline of research was, you, you had to want this. You had to really be interested in Nicholas of Cusa to go and do research on Nicholas of Cusa. And spend the time there. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it requires a different kind of brain, right? Where you um, are almost an autodidact, and you just yeah, you have to sponge up this stuff and kind of remember the references and where it was, like in the Weimar Ausgabe or whatever. Yeah, right. Luther's works, and just know that not you didn't have electronic searchable right. indexes and whatnot to find mm-hmm. the data. At least, and at, at the very least, it it lent itself to a robustness of scholarship. Mm-hmm. And also, it created these characters, these mm. personalities, because each of these guys, and I never met Krentz, but I knew Obermann, I knew Carter Lindbergh, um, who's still alive, Bob, um, Kolb is still alive. Mm-hmm. But uh, for the most part, most of these guys, uh, Jim Kittleson, they have passed, and every single one of them was a character, a personality yeah. that either caused you to instantly love and adore them or hate them. <laughs> There was no, there were no neutral grays with these guys. And I think a lot of that was born out of the years they spent digging through the archives and digging through these primary texts and spending literally living with these people. Yeah. And knowing them more intimately than maybe people in their own lives at the time knew them. Hmm. And as my one professor said to me, when we look into the well of history, we often see our own reflection. And a lot of what drives our research into these historical figures is a search for our own identity and to try and understand ourselves in the present tense. Yeah. Dan Carlin, uh, hardcore history podcast. He was on the Joe Rogan podcast a couple months ago talking about now that he's done so many episodes and so many thousands of hours of research, he's finally started to figure out what it is that kind of the overriding theme or the subtext of all of these podcasts, which is he, he just really wants to know what it is that drives us to do what we do as human beings. Like what is the base motivation of human beings that would drive us to do such great things and yet simultaneously such horrific things? Yeah. What do you figure out? Well, that's the, what the podcast is all about. <laughs> I think he's got a podcast coming up where he compares my lie to the Sandy Creek massacre. Oh yeah. I heard about this. Because these are two incidences where the military murdered civilians. And yet within that, there were people within those groups who were military who said, no, this is wrong. And they stood against the majority. Hmm. And in both instances, there were uh, extreme consequences for those people who stood up against uh, the orders and said, we will not kill these people. These are women and children. They're human beings. And so yeah. Carlin's looking at the Mylai massacre and the Sandy Creek massacre in Colorado and asking, what is it that can lead a normal person with a family, wife, kids, 
church-going Christian, to look at a woman and a baby and say, that's not a human being. I'm or, not murdering. I'm not killing a human being. I'm not murdering a person. No. I'm killing a thing. At least not at this moment, right? At this moment, exactly. That I have a baby at home who's the exact same age as the baby that I just shot. Mm. But that's not a baby. It's a thing. Like what, what happens to the human psyche in the context of a group, in the context – and it's not a conflict because, yeah, you're in the middle of a conflict. But that moment in time when you carry out this violence, there's no conflict because it's a civilian population right. and a military force. And then within that, what kind of integrity do you have to have as a human being to stand up against your, your peers, your fellows, and say, this is wrong. I refuse to do this. Yeah. And you know it could cost you your life. Yeah, and I think we talked about this in relation. I mean, you even have this in your own family of people coming back from the war, yeah, um, and and having to do really um, pretty inhuman things, right? Like 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 kill women and children, and and come yeah. back, and it and it it's not just trauma, but it it has changed them in a way that um, yes, sometimes is right. not even repairable, you know, in no, this life. I don't think so. Yeah. Well, I don't think it is repairable at all. I think you're damaged, and that's that. And uh, a long time ago, I read an author that made the assertion that our entire society suffers from a collective PTSD mm. because, as we were talking about in the last podcast, and I really need to go in and make sure that I got my, my number correct, but at least between 40 and 60% of all homeless people are veterans. And the the fact of the matter is, is that the economy that drives our country is war. Yeah. And the problem in the present tense is we have to constantly create wars because there are no wars anymore. We've beaten everybody. And so you have these soldiers from the Second World War forward. And most of the Second World War vets are either in their last days or have died. But you have Korean and Vietnam vets now. Mm. And then you have vets from the first Gulf War. You have guys coming back from Iraq, Afghanistan, women now too. And so maybe the cultural insanity that we're experiencing in the present tense is is a fallout from this cultural PTSD that we're suffering, that these people are coming home and being told normalize when they're damaged beyond repair when it comes to normalizing in the sense of, and what are, what does it even mean really, other right. than just conform and fit back in and adapt? And you've done things, you've seen things, things have been done to you that you can't come back from. What's interesting about <clears> this <throat> is that, um, okay, so the Veteran Affairs Department says, as of 2010, it was 17% of the homeless population. They were estimating 76,000 yeah. homeless veterans. Yeah. But what's, what's really interesting about this, when you're talking about violence and veterans, um, is that 56% of the homeless veterans are African-American or Hispanic. Wow. Even though it's only 12 or 15%, respectively, of the population. So that's the VA reports. That's, that's what the VA reports. I mean, that's the official right. stats, regardless of what the actual stats are. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, but... Um, I was listening to a show talking about kind of the nature of um, of racism in the South, yeah, and, and especially in the religious community. It was fascinating because uh, he w- grew up in a church, a Christian church. It was Baptist flavored. Uh, that was inherently racist, yeah, and and segregist, segregist, and they but they were so they were blind to it. They yeah. didn't see because it was just, it's just part of the fabric of their community even now. Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. And so, but that violence, <clears throat> so that violence keeps getting per, per, uh, perpetuated, generation to generation. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's like the cultural genetics. It's in the DNA of the culture. Right. Of that so, society. So, so and it began, of course, with chattel slavery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and yet it changed 
that generation, of course, or generations. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, like you say, it just keeps getting um, genetically passed down. Well, and I was talking with my son about this yesterday that I was actually talking with an elder mm-hmm. uh, yesterday about this too, That because um, I'm still working this out in my mind. But I wonder why, the, I wonder if this isn't why we have more and more young white boys going on they're killing people. They're shooting their they're shooting up schools. They're blowing people up in Austin, Texas, then blows himself up. These yeah. are all young white males. Yeah. And, and they're not, they're they're not jihadists. And no, they're isolated. Mm-hmm. They don't have a peer group that they fit into. They don't have a community they belong to that encourages them, that helps them. They don't feel like they can talk to their parents or their family. They're usually mentally ill. They're medicated with um, antipsychotics that cause dissociative personality mm-hmm. um, behaviors. And what is it about our society that there's an entire population of people that are isolated, alone, and being treated for mental illness that forces them into the corner of extreme uh, reaction? It's an extreme reaction to stress and fear and insecurity. And yes, we can talk about guns, but we also have to talk about mental illness in this country. Mm that there is definitely a problem with opiates in this country. Yeah. Definitely a problem. And we are prescribing four and five-year-olds now antipsychotics. Isn't that something? That's insane. I saw a, <laughs> I saw a story yesterday where they uh, were able to, quote-unquote, cure ADHD among the boys in the classroom by giving them three times the recess right. time. Even though the psychiatrist, psychologist who coined the term ADHD admitted at the end of his life that it's not real. Yeah, I made it up. He, I made it up. And now you're basically saying we figured out a way to cure something that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. It's like I was listening to a comedian last night from Britain who's come to the United States and in-law lives here and says, do the pharmaceutical companies get together every summer and say, we just invented this drug. Now, what's the disease we're going to invent to treat it with? She's like, how do you people have so many drugs for mental illness? Mm. This isn't exactly conspiracy theory either. No, it's... We're talking scientific uh, data. Pfizer and Merck don't hide the fact that things Mm -hmm. like Cialis and um, Humira and stuff were... They they invented them for... Like Viagra. We talked about this in the podcast before. Viagra was supposed to be um, a blood pressure medication. That's right. Didn't work. They hired an ad agency to actually come up with the disease. And then an ad agency came up with erectile dysfunction. There's yeah. no such thing as erectile dysfunction. Because actually it's and a side effect, unintended side a, effect of the medicine. <laughs> of the statin drugs they were giving people. That's right. And so the same company that sells you the statin drug sells you the drug that will counteract the effects of the first drug they gave you. And uh, do we talk about the most prescribed drug in America right now? The the highest selling drug in America? Mm, I don't think so. It's, um, what's, it's, is it Humira, the drug that they prescribe if you're having suicidal thoughts? Oh, I don't know. Is that Humira or... Uh, what's actually the name of that? Look that up for me, please. Humira is for rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah, that's not it. Oh, what's the name? It's right on the tip of my tongue. It's the number one selling drug in the United States. Okay. Well, we'll Google it here. We'll see what happens. Selling drug in America. Look at that. Google knows exactly what I want. Yeah. Top selling drugs in America. Here we go. This will work. Number one is... Sovalid? Sovaldi? I don't even know what that is. No. Abilify. Abilify, that's it. Yep, Abilify. Yeah, the first one's for hepatitis C. (laughs) So Abilify is prescribed if you're having suicidal thoughts as Mm -hmm. a consequence of your antipsychotics. And the side effect of Abilify is suicidal thoughts. Nice. Depression, bipolar, schizophrenia. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So they give you a drug to stop you from thinking about suicide, and the side effect of taking the drug is that you think about suicide. And it's commonly uh, prescribed to treat the irritability of somebody with autism. Exactly. So now you take somebody who's already yes. um, have some social issues probably. Mm-hmm. And, you know, right. And then you give them a drug that make, gives them suicidal right. ideation. Right, exactly. Let's, let's give someone that's already dissociated of something that increases and raises the level of disassociation and then wonder why they act out the way they do. So Abilify is a lot cheaper than this, this hepatitis C drug, which is why yeah. it's number one. Exactly. So, <clears throat> And so <clears throat> do we have a gun problem in this country? Who knows? Do we have a mental illness problem in this country? I think so, for mm-hmm. sure. I, the fact that we keep inventing illnesses to prescribe these drugs to that, that these companies are inventing. And then we wonder why our children are a mess. Wow. And then they act out in this way. And then everybody wants to either exploit them politically. The media exploits them to get clicks. And... Nobody wants to just ask the question, is it not insane that we have these young white men blowing people up, shooting people? We yeah. have to have a conversation about having armed people inside the schools. Yeah. Well, and sooner or later, we'll have armed people in church then, too. Exactly. Exactly. Because the and, same people that are in the schools are in your church. Right. And I'm not smart enough to think that I have the answer. I don't think anybody's got the answer. But we, mm. we can't even have the conversation because it's been politicized. Yeah. And then the media just jumps on it and uses it as an opportunity to divide us even further into conservative and liberal and pro-gun and anti-gun. And it's, again, it's not tinfoil hat stuff. This is just all out there in the open. They don't even care anymore. There's mm-hmm. no attempt at objective thought or objective reporting anymore. <clears throat> it just, it's out there because it's all about money. Yeah. It's just about selling ad rev. It's just about selling ads. and It's about selling drugs to people. Yeah. 2010, Abilify, 7.8 billion. <clears throat> Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. Yep. That's nuts. Yep. It's, Man. Six, it's five to six hundred dollars <throat> a dose. Yeah. That's amazing. You got to pay for it somehow, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Skepticism. But that's, that's why the Department of Defense uh, and the Joint Chiefs have declared uh, healthcare in this country an existential threat. Yeah. Because by, what is it, 2030, supposedly, if it keeps going, 100% of the federal budget will be going towards Medicare and Medicaid. That's the prediction. So that's why they're trying to gobble up defense money now while they can? Sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Build the wall. Why not? From crazy people who aren't on Abilify. That's right. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> Protect us from ourselves. Who knows? The decline of Western civilization. Oh, well, Virtue in the Wasteland, a uh, new podcast about how that's a myth, but I'm not so yep. sure. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's always, it's always perspective. You can only know what we can see from where we are right now, right? Right, exactly. And it doesn't look great, so. Well, it certainly doesn't look orderly. Mm-hmm. And I was just having this conversation with someone the other day that when I was in college, and we've talked about this on the podcast, the music that I listened to in college and the message that was really being pushed socially was we need to be together we need to stand together and we need to stop referring to each other according to our skin color or according to the way we dress or the clique that we belong to we got to be together yeah and that we're stronger if we're together and the other message was we got to stop turning to the government and institutions of authority to bail us out and save us we need to do this ourselves we need to organize at the community level we need to be locally activists 
we need to take care of our communities and be good neighbors to each other. That was really the message in the early 90s, mm. through the 90s, really, at least in the groups that I hung out with. And now it's the polar opposite. Yeah. And as some, as one person said, millennials are just raised in fear. They're raised to fear the world now. Yeah. Like they're supposed to be, they're taught to be afraid of everything. Your cell phone will kill you. The guy across the street's probably going to kill you. The people that you've never met before are going to kill you. Things you can't see are going to kill you. Everything's going to kill you. <laughs> <clears throat> there's a certain and degree of truth to that. There is, but there's no, there's no backstop to it. Yeah. You can't live your life in, in fear. fear. No. Yeah. And yet, 99 out of 10 people that I run into on the street are so afraid and insecure that they can hardly fo- function. Because well, so what are they driven, you know, what are you driven by? What are your, what are your motivations and your intents driven by, but fear and insecurities. Mm-hmm. And if you have no place to unload those. You're an anxious you, mess. You are an anxious mess and you act out in ways that become ever more, ever increasingly extreme, mm-hmm. jagged. And, and, and like, Irrational, at least externally, they look irrational. I'm sure they make well, sure. sense in your head. But. I was listening to Johnny Bang Riley on um, London Real, R-E-A-L, London Real. Johnny Bang Riley, he was a homeless addict who uh, got clean and sober. And then he's a MMA fighter. Uh, he's a speaker, a health advocate, and so forth. And oh, MMA. Ding. Ding. And uh, trains at Hodger Gracie Academy. Hodger Gracie, 10-time world champion in his weight class in jiu-jitsu. Ding. Uh, and you're like, how many? Well, how many times do you compete? Eleven. <laughs> he won ten because some of those he doubled up. He he fought in two different class weight classes. Oh, I see. But anyways, uh, Johnny Riley was talking about this on London Real that he called. He said cities are cortisol soup. That cities, by their nature, raise your cortisol levels and therefore increase your stress, which increases, of course, insulin production and your you're using plastic, 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 and mm-hmm. the fat around your liver and your body is toxic all the time. And the metals that you're taking into your body, along with the BPHs and stuff, yeah. is that cities are killing us. And we know this is a fact. This isn't, this is science. This is simple truth. And yet, and I know this, I lived in the city. My wife grew up in Portland in the suburbs, but when we lived in the city, uh, during seminary, and it was 12 years we lived in the city, as soon as we moved to our current home, we could actually physically feel the difference within like three days. Mm. It was amazing. <clears throat> and my kids even notice it amongst their friends who live in the city versus us who live more rural. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. Uh, Anne's family, uh, she grew up in the city and they would go out of state into mm-hmm. the Northwoods, like the polar opposite, right? Right. Um, and sit on the lake and sit in the boat. And you understand why that was so important to her family. But it makes sense, you know. If well, think about it this way, too. People from the city go on vacations in the country. Mm-hmm. And people in the country go to a vacation in the city. Mm-hmm. They go to Disneyland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, a fake city, but anyway. A fake city. The ideal city, the platonic ideal of a city. Oh, thank you, Walt. I wonder how many people actually imagine heaven is like Disneyland. <laughs> With its theme parks. <laughs> yeah, right. That's horrific. And all the mm-hmm. angels are the characters. Oh, well, but they had free cocktails at the by the pool. Of course they do. <laughs> they understand how to keep their customers happy. Mm, speaking of it's cortisol. Amazing. Cortisol, yeah. there you go. But even in the Bible, actually, speaking of this, there were, mm. in the Old Testament, there's a constant conflict between the herders, the, the, um, the people who are constantly moving, the nomads, yeah. the nomadic yeah. tribes, and the city people. 
Yeah, I think Cain and Abel right away, right? Right. And we'll look at Abraham and Lot and look at mm-hmm. the conflicts even then, and then look at the conflicts with Abraham every time he gets somewhere where there's an oasis. Hmm. And the conflict of like, hey, take your cattle and your camels and your people and get the heck out of here. This is our water. This is our land. You're trespassing. Because, of course, it literally is a matter of life and death. Hmm. You can't just let anybody come over here, especially a large tribe of people that Abraham had behind him. <laughs> They would destroy your entire ecosystem in the what a week, if not less. Well, and that was Pharaoh's issue with uh, with them up in Bethel, or where where were they? No, um, where were the people in in Egypt, the fertile land, Mm -hmm. up north? Whatever. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Same thing. They're like ants. They're like ants. We got to get rid of them. Yeah. Yeah. Excuse me. It's really dry in here today, so I keep clearing my throat. I apologize to those of you listening. Excuse me. A little of a klimt. For klimt. Yeah. But no, it's, a, it's an ongoing conflict between those people who live in the city and those who live in more rural areas. Well, there's a study I read yesterday. A study just came out uh, where they tested kids' brains around cell phones from infant to the toddler. And the, yeah, it, Don't it tell completely. Me. Don't tell me. I, yeah, I won't tell you how horrible it is. Yeah. <laughs> But they, the same studies that show what happens when you sleep with your cell phone next to your head at night and how that messes up with your brainwaves. Mm, screws not with your synopses. Not helpful. Now we really are getting tinfoil hat. We are. Again, this is science, people. It's science. It's data. But nonetheless, it's it just goes to show it's really inescapable, but yet we are hell-bent on destroying ourselves Yeah. in the name of progress. By trying to make the world better, by trying to make the world safer, by trying to make things more convenient, we're actually destroying ourselves faster. Yeah. But we don't ask the question until after the fact. Right. right exactly. After the fact, we go, our cell phones, is it safe to have a cell phone near a baby? Mm. <laughs> and it, t- it turns out long term, no, it's actually not safe. Not No, it's not. No. It messes up your brain. Screws with your synopses. Mm. Your neurotransmitters get all jaggy. It's not good. Yeah. Dropping those Ching. nuclear bombs. Mm. Had some effect. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Everybody's dying of cancer after the fact. Hmm. hmm. It's like uh, uh, that I, That show we love watching. Uh, my daughter, my 11-year-old, there's a show on YouTube. It's a BBC show. Edwardian House, Victorian House. Okay. I think I told you about this. They're different series. No. But basically, this historian goes into these houses, like a Tudor house, a Victorian house, an Edwardian house, and looks at all the different ways your house killed you. <laughs> and Lead so, paint. Lead, yeah, arsenic was used to for green to make green dye for like wallpaper and upholstery and so your entire house was literally just poisoning you and um when they discovered iradium oh, and yeah. they know you know iradium glows in the dark and they made everything out of iradium it was a big fad then everything glowed in the dark and the only reason they discovered that it gave you cancer is because the women that made the clocks and they would paint the clock faces the 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 hands of the clock mm-hmm. they were constantly um touching the tip of the brush to their tongue they were like licking the brush and they got jaw cancer and their jaws rotted oh man and then doctors went huh this is weird i see data (laughs) correlation right but it still was until the late 70s before great britain outlawed it so you can't predict the effect of of cell radiation until after a while yeah you you basically need a lifetime and, and you need all the data well no this is the weird thing it was within three years for these women well Okay, was, in that case, Because it yes. was constant, because they're working, you know, 12, 14 hours a day. Yeah, yeah. So they're constantly, and they're sitting, by the way, they're sitting at a table that's just 
got iridium on it. Well, it's easier to see if you have a small population with right, constant exactly. contact. Yeah, no, that's like a good that. point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, except everybody's being exposed to cell radiation. So unless yeah, <laughs> and right. unless there's a broad ec- epidemic that's you know significant, mm-hmm. you right. don't even perceive it. But. We'll find no, it out. Just, it just goes to show, like you said, you can say that this is the decline of Western civilization. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But every generation in the name of making things better figures out more advanced ways to destroy ourselves, hmm. essentially. And on that note, <laughs> goodbye, everybody. Have a great week. Oh. Luther has thoughts about law and society, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. He really does. So actually, that's a great... Good segue, Pastor Gillespie. I'm working on it. I'm learning. Let's dive into Krantz. Page 140 and 141. An essay on the development of Luther's thought on justice, law, and society. An essay, he says. An essay that is 178 (laughs) pages long. Not a 500-word essay, no. Smells an awful lot like a dissertation. Mm. But essay almost implies not final word, right? Right. Data. Right. Yeah, not essay in the ideas. sense of, I need a 10-page paper by Monday on Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. Well, rather, dissertation yeah. is, it, I don't know, etymology of that word, but seems mm. to almost be out to prove something, right? Yeah, pretty much. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what you're doing. Whereas an essay is more of a, or we might say survey or something. Uh, just blog. Broad strokes. Yeah, it's a blog. It's This is what I'm thinking right now. Yeah. And like you said, it's kind of an open question, open conversation. And the reason that I originally got turned on to this book is because it is Luther's thoughts on justice, law, and society. And so it deals primarily with left-handed kingdom stuff. Hmm. So let me see. I'll just read through the table of contents real fast for the listeners. You have the introduction. Then you have justice and law, beginning with his lectures on the Psalms in 1513 and 15. Then the biblical commentaries from 1515 to 1518. Then changes in Luther's doctrine of the law, 1515 to 1518. Then the reorientation of his position, and then justice and law, 1518 and later. So it goes through justice, law, up through the 1530s and the Galatians lectures. Mm-hmm. Then church and society. And then he talks about church and polity, estates and callings, God's two governments and the three hierarchies. And again, this is one of those rare studies, those rare essays that really just hammers down for you Luther's position on left-handed kingdom, we would call it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to read this today, too, on page 140 and 141 about the church and society, where Luther distinguishes between the true church and the earthly church. As uh, some would say, the visible and invisible? If you're a Calvinist, yes. Mm-hmm. That's why I said <laughs> Versus some what Luther said, hidden and revealed. Yeah. And the key point there is something that's invisible can never be seen. Something that's hidden can be revealed. Uh-huh. So there's a difference between visible and invisible versus Helpful. hidden and revealed. Yeah. This is why tune up your language, people. Words matter. Words matter. Now you know. So, Luther in his mature period preserves his basic distinction. And by mature period, Krantz is referring to the 1530s, the mm-hmm. Galatians lectures, the greater Galatians lectures, that, that era, that time. So, anything after the Eisberg Confession, after the catechisms. Mm. So Luther in his mature period preserves his basic distinction between the church in its primary spiritual sense and the church as it appears in the world. So notice he says there's the church, which is primarily meant in its spiritual capital S sense. Krantz doesn't make it capital, but that's what mm-hmm. Luther is referring to as capital S spirit. Right. 
and the church as it appears in the world, which would be the secondary sense, the secondary understanding. Yeah. So, for example, my congregation, the church building, is the worldly apparatus for the spiritual building, the Lord's house. Mm. But don't confuse the two. Kind of like that thing I learned as a child, you know, with the hands and this is the church. That, these are the people. No, no, the, something like open up the doors and there's all the people. Something. Yeah, like right. That. And, right. You know, this was my Methodist grandmother, so I was a little skeptical that it was true. But right. But I was just talking with someone uh, on the phone before we did the podcast about he had apostatized or believed he had apostatized until I clarified for him. Shout out to you, Chip. Uh, I clarified for him. You didn't apostatize from Christ. You apostatized from a church that didn't preach Christ. Ah, yeah, right. There's a huge difference. And as a Lutheran, let me clarify this for you, that you're not apostatizing from the church because you left because there was no gospel. Mm. And so you can be in a church that talks about Jesus but never preaches the gospel. Those are two different things. And that's what Luther's about here. Unfortunately, yes. So this is what Luther's about. Primarily, we're talking about church in, we would call it the big C church sense, the spiritual capital S sense, and the earthly sense as it appears in the world, the small C church sense. Luther is, he is, however, more keenly aware that this is the same church in two different realms of existence. And he avoids the terminology of two churches found, for example, in Fondem Papstum to Rome in 1520. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thus, he explains in the preface to a disputation of 1542, the church in such an assembly, congregatio, congregation, that we could not comprehend is such an assembly that we could not comprehend it unless the Holy Spirit has revealed it. Yeah. Again, hidden, revealed, not visible, invisible. Right. I had a uh, member of the last parish, um, actually wasn't a member, but he uh, started regularly attending again, and he had left his previous Lutheran church, which no longer existed at this point. Uh, it, it was Seminex congregation, so ended up kind of splitting off and people got disenfranchised, right? And yeah. he'd be like, well, you know, I left the church and now I'm back. I'm like, mm, I don't know that you actually ever left. Right. You, you left a visible assembly of the congreg- you know, of a Correct. congregation, um, right. but your baptism held and the mm-hmm. word compelled you right. to seek out a congregation, you know, once it was time again, I guess. The example I often use is that when we use the term visible, invisible, the way it works itself out practically is whoever's at the Lord's table on Sunday is the visible church. <laughs> whoever is not may be a Christian, may not be a Christian, but that's invisible. We can't see that. Yeah. Versus hidden and revealed, which means everybody at the Lord's table on Sunday may not be a Christian, but that is hidden from us. And therefore, the only way that the church is revealed to us is through the word, through the gospel, hmm. through the forgiveness of sins. So that, as Luther says in more in one place, if you want to see the gospel, you need to pluck out your eyes and stick them in your ears. Hmm. Your earballs, as right. Rod calls it. Yeah, yeah your earballs. And so the church is hidden even in the midst of the earthly church. Mm-hmm. And it is revealed only to faith through the gospel. Versus visible and invisible, we need to find the place where the church is visible. And then we can say, there, there are Christians. Go there. Versus the invisible, which is, well, maybe. Mm. We just can't be sure. Yeah, and one of the challenges is that we like to kind of draw boundaries and create our little ghettos, right? Of course, we love categories. That's why scholasticism is so popular to this day. But but then the problem is, is... Um, defining those boundaries and it, they're not sometimes they're flexible sometimes they're not it's permeable sometimes they're not and it's again it's it's actually kind of a vain attempt uh to keep things pure and holy right. on our well, own god doesn't own do effort. right angles and that drives us nuts <laughs> <laughs> so. 
like, how did I end up here? (laughs) Just look at a forest. I've used this example before. Look at a forest. According to God, that is orderly. We look at it and go, hey, let's just chop all that down and then plant everything in straight rows. That's what God would want. And God's saying, "Um, hey, dummy, I did this. (laughs) This is exactly the way I want it. And... Oh, you don't think that the forests are so irregular because of original sin? No, I think that the forests are in such a way that that's the way God wants them to be ordered. Yeah, and we we fail to see the order. Well, all you have to do is look at Jesus. Mm -hmm. Jesus ain't about right angles, man. He Mm -hmm. is not about right angles. It drives the Pharisees crazy Mm -hmm. because he doesn't fit into their categories. He refuses to participate. So he attacks the Pharisees. He attacks their religious works and then refuses to condemn a prostitute. (laughs) Yeah, and he eats with them, and he he has dinner parties with tax collectors, these mafia style enforcers with their Roman thugs, Doesn't and he critici- has dinner with the with the Pharisees, right? And criticizes the Pharisees, but won't criticize the tax collector he has dinners with, right? <clears throat> and this drives them nuts because it doesn't fit in their categories. It's like the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Mm-hmm. Everybody right. wants the tax collector to go clean his life up and come back to church next week as a Pharisee. Yeah, good luck with that. Right. And yet Jesus just leaves it hanging at the end of the parable. He went down to his house justified. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say that he stopped being a mafia-style enforcer or a thug. Doesn't say he repaid his debt. Doesn't say that he reformed his life. Just he's justified. Mm-hmm. And this is why we always want to add end notes or say things like, well, we, you just have to look at other places in the scripture to further explain the parable, mm-hmm. which is a fool's errand, really, because the parables are, ugh, they're difficult. Because they are about Jesus, but... So we could say with the with the tax collector, um, it begins with forgiveness, and whatever the Spirit works in him from there on out, uh, it's not recorded for us. <laughs> exactly. And it's done in a hidden way. And there's very the likely. point. Yeah, very It's likely. done in a way that you or I may not see it or be allowed to see it. Hmm. Because uh, Dietrich, was it Bonhoeffer or Luther? I can't believe I'm confusing Bonhoeffer with Luther at this point. But no, I think it was Luther that Luther says, the Holy Spirit hides our good works from us so that we can't take credit for them. Yeah, that's good though. Whoever said I it. think it was Luther. Because that, and that is really a key point is that if the Holy Spirit reveals to us or allows us to see his fruits and how they are produced in and through us or in and through others, we will 100% take credit for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because then we score religious points with the Almighty. Or yeah. we can say, well, look, I'm more Christian than you are because my religious works are purer than yours are, perfecter than, you know, we talked about in the episode about. Uh, the sacrament of penance and how mm. the confession had to be based on the purity of the confession, the perfection of the confession, so forth and so on. Versus, well, no, you're confessing because you're already forgiven. Yeah. And you're just seeking an affirmation of what you doubt or whether you are skeptical about. Admittedly, <clears throat> it's nice to get an occasional reminder um, that your work's done in faith are beneficial to others. <laughs> right. It, it seems to happen occasionally, maybe when you most need it, but... Uh, I think of my mother who's a public school teacher and mm-hmm. she'd wear a cross and, um, you know, she'd be a good neighbor to the kids, a mm-hmm. uh, good teacher. And, you know, it, it took a long time, but occasionally, you know, a student after they graduated, maybe they come back as a student teacher, you know, and say, sure. you know, you really made an impression on me, yeah. um, in a positive way. And I, and I knew your faith because of how you treated me, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so that's that's edifying in its own way, but I could see, like, if that happened regularly, source of pride, perhaps. Well, the danger is saying that that work of mercy is somehow the gospel. Mm, yeah. Because then you're turning your works into the gospel. 
versus the fruit of the gospel. Yeah. I mean, if, so the, if you made this world just a little back bit to of the a gospel. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. That is so frustrating. I hope you can edit those out and post. I can. Okay. That I think that's where we get mixed up is we say, well, because I had this effect in my earthly vocation, that is somehow the gospel versus oh. no, it'll point you back to the gospel. It's the backspin of the fruit of the spirit. However, it's not the gospel. It's yeah. going to point you to the preacher. It's going to point you to the Lord's table. It's going to point you back to baptism. Mm -hmm. But the work itself is edifying in an earthly sense, in a vocational sense. I think we talked about this in relation to funerals too, right? Yeah, I mean, right. Um, it, it's almost Im impossible to have a funeral unless you didn't know the person at all uh, and to not speak of, of their life, right? What, yeah, what they and did. everybody wants you to. For and everybody wants you to. The problem isn't so much speaking of them, but where you give the credit. Right. Right. Exactly. You know, and and what it points to. I mean, yeah. uh, if if they accomplish, if there's anything good accomplished in them, it's it's for God's glory, not for theirs. Right. right. In and, the way of gift, I think it's easy to do that, mm -hmm. or at least it's easier to do that when you frame it in the way of gift. When you frame it in the way of transaction, in the way mm -hmm. of offering, in the way of sacrifice, what I've done or what they did, right? Then it lapses into that eulogizing, that platitudes and cliches and the platonic ideal of heaven kind of thing mm, yeah look at all the sacrifices they made for yeah you. It's, it's, it's smarmy mm. you gotta take a shower afterwards because you feel dirty <laughs> we're better to say uh um so-and-so was baptized received correct received the sacrament correct um, faithfully as dr neagle says this one was baptized everything else was chaff mm. the nice. only thing that will not be burned away at the final judgment is your baptism yeah uh what was the Built on the rock, the hymn, you know, talks yeah. about talks about how the church stands regardless of whether the Even steeples, when steeples are falling. Are falling. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 These things are, can become idols, often are. And uh, you know, we can take it well, away. Think about how often someone comes to you or my, me as a pastor and says, This is my family's church mm -hmm. or my family built this church, therefore you will. Mm. Wrong. Wrong. Wrong approach. Wrong approach vector. You're you're not gonna win points there. You're not wow. influencing people you're not winning friends that also reveals that pastors are generally outsiders to the congregations they correct serve. <laughs> yeah i would say so for sure mm -hmm. so the church is such an assembly a congregation that we could not comprehend it unless the holy spirit had revealed it the mm -hmm. church is in the flesh and appears as revealed visible it is in the world and appears in the world nevertheless it is not the world nor in the world and no one sees it Therefore, those who do not proceed in the proper meaning of the word are easily deceived, yeah. which we just talked about. Yeah, that's Luther. If you look at, and I'll use, a, I'll choose a controversial subject, mm. since I'm not uh, foreign, I'm not a stranger to controversy. The uh, flags on the altar. Oh yeah, the we're American over an hour in, the, in, so likely, probably not very much right, exactly. listening at this point. I'm at 43, and I don't know what you've been doing for the okay. extra Well, oh yeah, that's true, 43 minutes. minutes. Well, only the really dedicated people make it 43 That's right, in. so shout out to all the dedicated listeners. Thank you. Who we didn't lose after we were talking about Abilify. Oh, by the but, way, if you like this uh, episode, you should go rate us on iTunes. <laughs> positively, and uh, share on social, email so, it to your friends, etc. Thank you. Mm -hmm. But you have the American flag on one side and the Methodist flag on the other. I'm sorry, the Christian flag. It's Methodist not Sunday it's, school flag. It's even worse. <laughs> it's the Methodist flag. It's all it is. It was invented by the Methodist, which should give you, that should be your tip off. It shouldn't be on the altar. We love the Methodists. <clears throat> yes. Yes, we do. <laughs> Yet 
try and take those flags off the altar and put them down or put them by the front door, put them in the reception hall, wherever it may be, and see what the response is, specifically from veterans. Um, it took me seven and a half years to move them off the altar to stand where they are currently by the front doors. Hmm. And the way in which I did it was simply during Lent, took them down because that's traditionally, traditionally, Mm -hmm. I say traditionally, the last 60 years, 70 years. You take them off the altar during Lent, put them back up after Lent. I put them by the front doors. And the reason I finally made that decision and the way in which I explained my decision to my vets in particular, because I love them, I have nothing Mm -hmm. but respect for them. Yeah, right. Is... When you face the altar, you should only see Christ. And then when you exit the church and you walk by those flags, those are a reminder that you are a Christian, but you're also a citizen. And then in your vocation as a Christian, as you talked about with your mom, mm-hmm. you are a witness yeah. in your vocation of faith, of the baptized life. And I want you to walk by these flags when you come into church and when you go out of church to remind yourself, I'm now leaving, so to speak, the world of my earthly vocation and entering into my vocation as primarily a worshiper of Christ. Mm-hmm. And then when I exit, so I'm being poured into the I'm being poured into the altar to receive the body and blood, and I'm being poured out from the altar into the world. And that these flags then can actually be a helpful reminder of your Christian vocation in the world. Right. But if they're up on the altar, it confuses us about the distinction between your earthly vocation and, well, your earthly vocations will be wiped away, washed away in the in the final judgment at the last That's true. day. Including your marriage. Including your marriage, exactly. Including your pastor, including mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. No need <clears> so for under not, shepherds when you have the good shepherd right. on the throne. <laughs> and we have to remember those flags were put up there during the first second world war so that especially amongst the Germans, it was to prove that we were patriots. Yeah. And by we I mean I'm Irish, so I'm not talking about myself at all. But uh Wow. And the same advocates that said, put the flags in the sanctuary by the 50s are publishing in Lutheran Witness, take them out. Exactly. We don't need them anymore. Right. And the CTCR published their opinion in 1948 saying they recommended you not do that because it is a confusion of the two kingdoms. And that CTCR document is available. You can go Mm -hmm. find it. And as Luther says, nevertheless, the church is not the world nor in the world and no one sees it. And no one sees it. Exactly. So keep those keep that distinction hold that distinction because mm-hmm. it, i think it's a healthy distinction it's a helpful distinction <clears throat> excuse me and even for your pastor it's helpful in his teaching and his preaching then to distinguish between in this place what are we here for the gospel mm-hmm. and the gifts right out in the world it's variable there are lots of gifts out there there are various graces as P- as peter writes in his second right. letter i think right. and therefore in the church to make that distinction clear that we're in this building we're sitting in these pews, there's a pulpit up there or whatever there is, a lectern, there's an altar, whatever it may be. These are all things that are passing away. Yeah. These are not the big C church. This is not the big S spirit church. These are simply the, what do you want to say, the ornaments yeah. of the earthly sanctuary. Yeah. Well, and it's one thing to say that your faith informs um, your your citizenry, right? And mm-hmm. we would yeah. say ours does. Right. Right. We see it. We see being a citizen as one of the ways that we love our neighbor. Yeah. Uh, well, going back to what you said about funerals, and I'll reference our our friend uh, Pastor Swirla. Mm. When when a veteran comes into the church, he has them take the the flag off mm-hmm. and they put on the the funeral pall for yeah. the church. Yeah. And the way in which he explains it is, when you are in an embassy, for example, on foreign soil, you fly mm-hmm. your flag. And then when you walk into that embassy, you're on American soil, even though you're in a foreign land. Likewise, when you come into this church, you're in a different embassy. You're in the embassy of Christ. Mm -hmm. And this is the flag of this embassy. And when you stand on this soil, you're in the kingdom of God. 
And then when we go out of the church and we go to the cemetery, we will put the flag, the pall back on, on our way the to the cemetery. We put the flag back on. And I thought that was a helpful distinction. But in a way, even when you leave the church, you're still wearing the mm-hmm. pall the, uh, of your baptism, right? Right. right. <laughs> you can, yeah, you can take a pall off, you can put a flag on, but nobody can strip away your baptism. Exactly. And this is what Luther's after then. The church is in the flesh and it appears as visible, but only in the world, as it appears in the world. Nevertheless, the church is not the world, nor is the church in the world, and no one sees the church. No one. Hmm. Not the people in church, not the people that are not in church. No one sees it. Therefore, those who do not proceed in the proper meaning of the word are easily deceived. Hmm. Meaning, if you don't have the proper understanding of the words, church, earthly, spiritual, you can be easily deceived. And how many people do, or how many churches throughout history do all of us know or hear about that were deceived and fall into earthly definitions of the church? Yeah. Well, and, and, and it's easy to fall into that definition when you think, oh, well, I maintain membership in a Christian congregation. That mm-hmm. makes me a Christian. Yeah. I'm like, is that what Christian means? Right. Is to be well, on a on a role or a roster in right. an office. Think about how <laughs> destructive it's been since the state determined the religion of the country. Yeah. That if you're born in Sweden, you're Lutheran, even though they don't hold to the teachings of the Lutheran confession. Yeah. I was talking to someone on Sunday who was, who was just in Sweden for work and was visiting uh, <clears throat> cathedrals in Uppsala, I think, and Stockholm yeah. would probably be yeah. the other one. And on the, tour, on the tours, the tour guides actually say, uh, well... You know, I know we're a Lutheran country or we're a Christian country, but we don't go to church anymore. Correct. <laughs> and they right. tell you that. It's like, this is a pretty building, but we don't go here anymore. Right. Wow. Yeah. Well, and you see this in South America with the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. How many people are Roman Catholic in name only and only go to Mass on holidays? And even then, they're just going because it's a ritual, it's a tradition. It's nostalgia. Again, this is our. This is my. This is my grandmother's church. Therefore, we go to this church. Yeah, it's almost like the Fourth of July or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, then continuing, or in a contemporary letter to Nicholas Amsdorf, who had qualms of conscience about the pomp and the circumstance of his episcopate, Luther writes that God does not care for such persons or masks as the episcopate, and they are not his kingdom. Hmm. That's what the uh, Augsburg Confession says, too, regarding, uh, what is it, regarding the, the papal authority, right? I'm sure you're wrong about that, because obviously there is one true church in the world, and it's the church that I serve in. Oh. Well, I was right? going to I mean... <laughs> well, this was, this was the deal. If, if, as long as you guys want to say that this is only by human right, you know, mm-hmm. that you've got this whole church order thing, and you do this to try to... Right. Just to kind of keep things straight, right? In an earthly sense. But yeah. it's not by divine right. We'd be cool with that. Yeah. But the problem is, he said, what? <clears throat> that, that it was God-ordained. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we love to hedge our bets when it comes to that. <laughs> we love to hedge our bets. I was joking before, if none of you caught the sarcasm in my voice, um, that how often does a church body say, we're not saying all those other church bodies aren't Christian. We're just saying that, <laughs> well, you're not really a Christian if you don't belong to our church body. Yeah, it's like that old joke about all the rooms <clears> of <throat> heaven, right? Right. That, again, we don't listen for a person's confession. Rather, we look at the membership font, you know, the the black type at the top of their card. Hmm. Where, where do you pay your dues? What club do you belong to? Yeah. It's also Tribalism. lazy. <laughs> of it's, course it's lazy. Yeah. <laughs> but it's easier than listening to a person's confession because that's messy. 
Oh, we love my... right angles. <laughs> and it makes them uncomfortable, right? To have to of speak course. out loud. <laughs> makes you uncomfortable to ask the question because you don't know what the response is going to be. They're uncomfortable now because they don't know what what to say, what the right thing to say is versus the wrong thing. Are you? Is this a test? Like, what's going on here? Oh, you might shame me. If you're examining right. someone with the purpose of shaming them into belief, good luck with that. Well, that's the whole thing about fear and insecurity driving our motives and our intent again, that mm-hmm. if I'm fearful and I need to maintain control, then I'm going to come at you in a way that's antagonistic, mm. whether it's intentional or not, implicit or explicit. And likewise, then you're going to respond yeah. with to that force with resistance. And then there's, there's violence now all of a sudden. Yeah. And church hasn't even started yet. Yeah. Think of uh, like Philip with the eunuch and, and the eunuch says, yeah. well, what's to prevent me from being baptized? Right. That's a that's a good question. Right. Whereas what we sometimes see is somebody says, I deserve this. You know, I deserve I've been a member or, here, here. and Well, I'd and, like to baptize you, but are, you're not a member of this church. No, you see that too with baptism. Or sure. you don't understand what's happening. And so until I've taught you for nine weeks, I can't baptize mm-hmm. you. <clears throat> Versus believing what Paul says in Titus 3, <laughs> baptism, mm-hmm. regeneration, renewal in the Holy Spirit. Nothing that we can claim or take credit for. Mm, all gift. All gift. But again, right angles. Let's get the categories tight. Mm. That way we can protect ourselves. Perception is protection. Mm. As uh, Vinny Shorman says, famous Muay Thai instructor and announcer. Ding. Perception is protection. That just because we perceive something to be true doesn't mean it's real. Mm. And really, this is the point of Luther's distinction between the earthly and the spiritual church. Yeah. Our perception of the church is entirely earthly. And unless it's revealed to us by the Holy Spirit through the gospel, through the gospel, it remains hidden. And then it's only revealed to faith. So even though it's revealed to faith, we still can't visibly see it with our eyes. Mm. So therefore, our perception is always a false vision of reality versus the gospel, which declares you are baptized, you are a Christian, you are a beloved child of God. Yeah. So but once, I don't see that. Well, yeah. too bad. It's the, that's the reality of it. So, so in one sense, the, the congregation, the people who compose a congregation, so pastor and people mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and other church workers, they, they can make or break a congregation you know, based upon their faithfulness and, and what they say and do. But in another sense, God often works uh, invisibly, we might say, or what do, you, what do you want to say, spiritually through them, despite them, really. In a hidden way. Yeah, in a hidden way, so that um, you can have kind of a, a boring doofus of a pastor, and mm-hmm. yet the congregation is preserved. God's word is preached. And I believe I cannot, by my own reason or strength, yeah. believe in Jesus Christ, my Savior, or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel. Yeah. You may be a faithful congregation, but that doesn't mean you have faith. Hmm. You may preach about Jesus, but that doesn't mean you're preaching the gospel. Right. It's entirely the Holy Spirit's work. Hmm. And he hides his work from us so that we can't take credit for it. <laughs> so even when you're at the Lord's table... And you look at it from a distance and say, we're doing it. We're doing it. Well, the very fact that you're saying that, that's pride and that's a sin because you're not paying attention to Jesus now. You're praising the congregation. And now you're sorry about having your pride. But then you're proud of being sorry about having pride. Yeah. (laughs) And you just jump, you get on the horse, you fall into the ditch. You get off out of the ditch, you get on the horse, you fall into the other ditch. That's right. So celebrating the Lord's Supper as, as celebrant or as... Um, person kneeling at the rail, it's not performance art, right? Right. It's not It's not a, so much about doing it right, but receiving it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Do you have the words? Yes. Mm-hmm. 
Do you have the body and the blood? Yes. Do you no, have the eating and drinking? No, he didn't cross yes. himself at the right time. Right. I, uh, we're going through this in confirmation right now because First Communion for them is mm-hmm. this coming Thursday. What are the three things that are necessary? The word, the element, the eating and the drinking. Mm-hmm. That's it. Mm-hmm. Everything else, whatever. <laughs> Get away with it. Yeah. I was even thinking about this the other day that this whole idea about reserving the host and so forth, right? Mm, yeah. But think about how many centuries the church functioned without wafers. These very clean, pure styrofoam wafers, right? That you had bread. And bread is messy. It crumbles, right? No, they had those special like patents with the, 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 with the, the stick pizza on it. spatulas? Yeah, pizza yeah, spatulas. That they can yeah. put under your chin so they can get all right. the crumbs and then they lick them off of there at the But end. that's what I'm saying though is that this idea then that well we have you know, you you have to consume everything right now because if you don't, is it the consecrated body of Christ, is it not the host? When is it? When is it not? You get into all of these abstract arguments mm, versus, right. listen, it is for you until it's not. And we have the sacramental action even. So we can kind of measure that progress and go, well, it starts here and it ends here liturgically. We're, and I'm, again, I'm not proposing that you just willy-nilly misuse the host. I don't, but I also have a small congregation so I can predict pretty yeah. reliably how many wafers I need. Yeah. But I'm just saying, for centuries and centuries, they didn't have wafers. They had mm-hmm. bread. No, they and just it's ate, messy. And, and they ate it. <laughs> That's... And they ate it. And, and yet at the same time, when the crumbs fall on the floor, that's a practical problem. And therefore, they invent a pizza spatula, a giant wooden board to basically protect that from falling on the the ground because that is the that is the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we have to respect this. But my point is this. Almost everything in the present tense that we hold up as like, this is a religious action that must be done for the sake of God, mm-hmm. started off as just the solution to a practical problem. Mm, right. And then we forgot the original intent and began to venerate the act, the action. Yeah, and there may have been a spiritual problem there too, is that people, you know, respected the, the element yeah, of course. as it was being used. And so let's, let's like protect alps. conscience. Alps were, the reason alps were big and billowy is because they didn't have central heating in Northern Europe in the Middle Ages. Hmm. You got to wear furs. And then along the line, someone forgot about that. And now we still wear these billowy moo-moos. And God help you if you don't wear an Alban stole. Yours isn't properly fitted? Surplus. Chassable. Miter. (laughs) Yeah, well, you need a hat, too, because all the heat escapes through your head. That's right. Exactly. (laughs) And then the magic underwear that you wear under it. Mm. But that's what I'm saying is that so much stuff historically in the church started as something practical, a practical solution to a problem. And then they forgot the original intent. And so we began, it's like um, illuminated manuscripts. Mm-hmm. We don't realize those monks were illiterate. That's why they did that. They worshiped the letter because they couldn't read. Yeah. Well, even even the vestments, going back to those, uh, yeah. these are these are largely Roman clerical vestments, yes. not Christian. Yes, they are. <laughs> the, these are, <laughs> this is just formal wear for important people. Right. Well, I, we were talking about this last Sunday. If you look at, we on our, in our Bible study room now, we have all these confirmation pictures going all the way back mm. to the 30s, 20s. And before Vatican II, none of the pastors on the pictures are wearing a tabbed collar. In fact, when you read some of the notes from these pastors, they wouldn't be caught dead looking like a Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. In fact, they use the term papist to refer to Lutherans who wear tabbed collars. Isn't that interesting how times change? Speaking of tribalism, yeah. Mm -hmm. And again, I wear a tabbed collar. It just makes it easier for me to get into places. That's right. 
people know who you are. Say, why you're there. I'm her pastor. Yeah, exactly. Nonetheless, a tabbed collar doesn't make you a pastor. No. What was the show? Uh, uh, Peaky Blinders, right? Yes. And I was I was watching it. I don't. Well, it wasn't with my children, obviously. But um, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> Call social services. But yeah, it was some formal occasion on the show, season two, and and there he's wearing a round collar. He's actually wearing a. You yes. Know, what, it looks like a cleric collar, but it's not. It's just a formal. No. That was the style. It was Stark. Yeah, Stark's yeah. collar. Yeah. Mm. But again, we love our categories. Mm. We love those right angles because then we can nail everything down and know for certain that we're on we're on team Jesus. You're doing it right. Yeah, I'm winning. Mm-hmm. Which, as he points out, as long as the distinction is kept, as long as the tension is being held, there's not a problem. Yeah. But as soon as you lose the distinction and those begin to blur together between the visible and the invisible, hidden and revealed, you're deceived. And then all of a sudden, things like vestments, flags on the altar, the host, how it's handled, blah, blah, all of these things now become a matter of faith and mm-hmm. all determine whether you're a true Christian or a false Christian. Yeah. And like we said, there's a sense where um, the external is helpful for good yeah. order, for uh, for, what do you want to say? Ritual action for repeated action, so that you remember how to do it, yes. right? Right. People yeah. know what's going to happen, and uh, also maybe for teaching, uh, but only because it represents uh, a spiritual truth that isn't seen, right? Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a good way to say it. It's it is pointing us to Christ, hopefully, without being platonic. Mm-hmm. It's not like, well, this is real bread, and this is going to point us to a higher reality, which is the thing that Luther struggles with, even in the Catechism, of how do you how do you explain the metaphysical, physical interaction <laughs> in the elements? This is bread, but it's also the body. Mm. Is it's means a, is. Is means is, exactly. Yeah. So, Luther writes that God does not care for such persons or masks as the episcopate, and they are not his kingdom. On the other hand, adds Luther, the church must appear in the world, but it cannot appear except in a mask, person, shell, husk, or some sort of costume in which it can be heard, seen, and grasped. Otherwise, it could never be found. That's mm-hmm. what you were just talking about. Yeah. Look at that. Such masks are a husband, a ruler, a servant, John, Peter, Luther, Amsdorf. And yet the church is none of these because the church is neither Jew nor Greek. Mm-hmm. Boom. That's a truth hammer. Yeah. I once had a um, somebody working on a, on a master's degree. No, actually, I think it was a doctorate. And he, he asked me just a rhetorical question. Uh, what's necessary for church? Sure. And he was talking about... Well, I don't know where he was going with it. Uh, I answered, I remember this distinctively, I, I answered physical stuff, right? Like an altar sure. and elements, water, bread, wine, um, and I guess the scriptures. I mean, that, and those were the kind of my distillation of the whole thing. Um, but I don't know, maybe he was trying to get me to go to something a little bit more uh, metaphysical, as you said, you know, mm-hmm. to the point, uh, Christ and uh, the gospel, really, his right. gospel, what he did. Well, and this is also the danger, pastorally speaking, the temptation to imagine that your words are God's words simply by virtue of the fact that you're the pastor. Mm, right. Yeah. That I'm not God's word. I am the messenger. I'm the instrument. Yeah. He calls the tune. He blows. He expresses the air and something comes out. And what's miraculous about that is the fact that this sinner who can only speak sinful words, God can actually use as an instrument of the gospel to speak his word. 
you, you have to catechize folks to to realize that yes. um, you know actually part of your vocation as Christian is to examine my words according to the scripture, right? Right. Um, and what you know, the scripture teaches. And mm-hmm. so I even said in a sermon on Wednesday, I said, uh, you know, you're here, you're hearing God's word because we read it from the scripture. Yeah. Uh, and then I said, God willing, you're hearing that word preached from the pulpit. <laughs> right. 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 But, but that, that wasn't in my manuscript, but that little, that little extra phrase occurred to me in the moment. Uh, God yeah. willing. Um, is well, this, this really? is the danger of confusing pastor or church with God. Mm-hmm. And then saying, well, because I disagree with the pastor, I disagree with God. Or because I left the church, I've left God, as mm-hmm. you pointed out earlier. Yeah. But rather what go with what Luther says, which is John, Peter, Luther, Amsdorf, a ruler, a servant, a husband, these are all just masks of God, but not God himself. Larvae dei, right? Larvae dei, that's right. The church is neither Jew nor Greek. Mm-hmm. It is not segregated. Yeah, and it's not According, oriented with a particular uh, people group or... Oh, man, you just walked into a doorway. Country. <laughs> I just... Um, well, you have Hispanic ministry, black ministry, poor ministry, youth ministry, Elder ministry, single ministry, couples I like ministry, multi-ethnic ministry, multi-ethnic ministry. There's neither Jew nor Greek in the church, and then what do we do? Mm. We segregate. We segregate. We segregate. We reduce everybody into a category. That isn't to well, say that your your particular manifestation of the church on earth might not look segregated, but I guess there's a distinction between uh, intention and right. just consequence of where you live. Uh, right. Who's in your community? Right. You know, what part of the world well, you're in? Whatever. I always have a problem, and this is my personal thing, so just bear with me. I always have a problem when people, pastors or congregations, say, well, we need to have a special group just for these people to get them to come to church. Hmm. As or if, do this special thing just for them. Right, right. As if that somehow, again, is the gospel. Hmm. Or that if we can just get them in here, then we can get the gospel in the ear. Mm-hmm. Or can get them to join the church. As we joke about at my congregation, we instead of saying we need more young people in church, we start saying we need more old people in church <laughs> because they have all this disposable income from social security. <laughs> Let's get young people don't bring offerings. <laughs> young people are worthless. They're poor. Nice. But they're on a fixed income, pastor. Yeah, you're you're on a large fixed income. <laughs> That's right exactly. It's called like permanent sal- retirement salary. That's right. Not bad. That's right. Not bad. Oh. But yeah, I, I do. I think it's it, it's not a matter of externals. It's not a matter of appearance. It's a matter of motives. It's a matter of what what is this going? What's going on in your heart? What yeah. is the craving of your heart? What do you covet? Mm-hmm. I use the example. I was talking with a megachurch pastor who covets my Bible study group on Sundays. I have a congregation. For those of you who don't know, that is about ninety five members total. So mm-hmm. we have about sixty five people on Sunday, seventy five on a good Sunday. And at least half my congregation attends Bible studies regularly, right? Mm -hmm. This is a pastor of a congregation of 2,000 people, and he gets 30, 40, 50 people at a Bible study. Drives him nuts. (laughs) And so we're talking about this, and he's pumping me for information about what secret code I have cracked in order to get people to come. And I said, I don't know. I just show up, and they're there already. I'm sure they would be there without me being there. And actually, his Bible study is just like your Bible study. I mean, that's kind of a critical limit. But you right. get too much larger than that, you can't have conversation, right? Well, he's just saying in the sense of like my Bible study area that we use can hold a maximum of 30, 35 people. Mm. His Bible study area can hold about 250 people. Yeah. So when my room is empty, there's a couple, there's an open couch. <laughs> when his 
Bible study is empty, it it looks like a woman's studies class during J term. <laughs> it's right. just like this little crowd at the front. Well, but that's a false presumption that if you build it, they'll come, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's also a false presumption. There's some code. Mm. Inten- and, yeah, that through some intentional action on his part, he could right. motivate people to desire to hear God's word. Right. Well, and he, as as we, I joked, I said, you covet my Bible class and I covet your $800,000 budget. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <right>. You want to switch? <laughs> Just for like, let's say five years, I'll give you my Bible study numbers and you give me your missionary budget. How yeah. about that? <laughs> well, <laughs> Adopt and, me. You know, folks that point at all the practicalities, I, I think what really is behind it is... Uh, is some latent doubt about the effectiveness of God's word preached and Correct. received in the sacrament. Right. I mean, as if we need to do or add something else to sugarcoat it or to package it up. Uh, Irenaeus talks about this at length, right? Right. Yeah, and just, uh, no, actually, uh, <laughs> it is enough, right? Sada yes. um, to to preach, preach the gospel and minister the sacraments. And everything else while good and edifying and maybe you know yes. contributing to the life of the congregation, um, isn't going to call, gather, enlighten, or sanctify the church, bring the church together. Exactly. And mm-hmm. the old Adam has to measure everything. We mm-hmm. love to quantify. We love to compare. Pastor, why and, was attendance down this week? Right. And as I know it constantly, well, I don't know. comparison is the thief of joy. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, and especially if you're trying to compare to who you once were. You know, who you once were, who you want to be, mm. therefore living in the past or the future, but not accepting the present tense as gift yeah. from God's fatherly hand. Look at this. There's 11 people here in church. We don't, and the organist injured his hand. Yeah. So we don't have any accompaniment, um, right. but we can still sing. And we sang the whole Right, thing. exactly. It's like, really? In a big church like this with 11 people, we could still sing um, and not get lost in the reverberation? And <laughs> yeah, it was fine. It was fine. It was right. good, actually. <laughs> So yeah, there there is no such thing as the gospel for this ethnic group or the gospel for this social group or the gospel for there's just not women's in study a, Bible. Yes, I mean in a, again in an earthly neighborly sense maybe, mm. but in a capital S spiritual sense there is neither Jew nor Greek. Right. There is just Christ. Yeah. Well, and thanks be to God for that because yeah, no kidding. Otherwise, I'd have a hard time figuring out where I'm supposed to draw my lines. Right. Mm. <laughs> I use crayon. I, I was never good at coloring inside the lines. Shocker. <laughs> He's such a rebel. Yeah. Oh, man. Born that way. Luther, after 1530, is also able to bring his idea of the church even more clearly than in 1520 and 21 into relation with his basic thesis that the Christian is at the same time totally just in Christ and also a sinner. Hmm. What's that called again? I think we talked about this before. The Seamal. We used to have a show about it. We did. Still available, by the way. You can go the listen old, to it. The yeah. old days. Oh, Higher you things don't have that to listen to it. I know. I felt like the simulcast was like basic training for this podcast. Mm. <laughs> and only two survived. Right. And only two survived. That's right. <laughs> the last two left on the island. Now we'll face off like Kirk and Spock. <laughs> in nice. In the arena. In the arena. Or no, what so, is that? That's Hulk and... Uh, and Thor, right? That's right, which I am going to watch tomorrow night, finally. Finally. Oh, it's hilarious. Uh, yeah. It's hilarious. It's the funniest but, Marvel movie yet. But this really is the key point to this whole distinction that Luther is making, is that it's not you're either in the earthly church or you're in the big-ass spiritual church, but rather simultaneously you're in both because you're righteous in Christ by faith, through mm-hmm. faith, and yet in yourself you are sinful. Yeah. And therefore you cannot escape 
doing. You can't escape the intent and the motives of your heart. You can't escape coveting what other churches have or want. You can't escape coveting, craving, desiring what other your neighbors want. And yet at the same time, because you are righteous in Christ, all that you do in faith is a good work. Yeah. Because it's it's the work that is done by Christ for you, in you. And this is a key point that I know it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And what Paul is really pointing to is that all of the good works of Christ are done for you. Therefore, because Christ is in you, all the works that he has done are your works. And therefore, you don't have to worry about good works anymore because it's already done. They've been, again... But Pastor, we forgot to put out that last candle. Right. Well, we don't have a final hymn because we do Compline for uh, Lent for midweek services. Oh. So there's no final hymn. <laughs> that and my daughter, off. my daughter is just completely, she comes up after church. Um, uh, Dad, um, when am I supposed to put the candles out? <laughs> <laughs> You're not and doing said, it well, right, kid. Come on. And I said, well, when do you think? And she goes, I don't know. There's no final hymn. And I said, exactly. You are free to put them out whenever you think it's the right time. And she said, but without the final hymn, I don't know when that is. <laughs> and now I have an example to use in Bible study forever about the problem with freedom and the old Adam. Mm, that's right. You're free in Christ. Well, now what? <laughs> yeah, because the sinner is the one who needs or wants even does, uh, law, order, yes, um, everything just right, Something, some standards to measure up to. Well, this is the point of Article 6 in the formula on the third use. Mm-hmm. is that it's the old Adam who needs the law, not the new man in Christ. The yeah. new man in Christ does spontaneously and without any urging what the law demands of the old Adam. And like even saying like amen in the middle of a sermon or something? Right, Ooh. exactly. Caught up in the gospel, the new man in Christ just simply says, yep, that's true, that's true, everybody. Did you hear him? That's true. And everyone, all the Lutherans go, easy, buddy. Shh, mm. shh, don't make eye contact. <laughs> Troublemakers. <laughs> right, there's, there's no noise in church. Although this past Sunday, I scolded my congregation before we even began because I said, good morning. And I was like, like, this is the day the Lord has made. And then they all very loudly said, let us rejoice and be glad in it. So I do I do exhort my congregation. Yeah, well, you're, you're exhorting the <laughs> too early in the morning sinners on Sunday. That's right. Wake it up. Mm-hmm. And there's, some, there's actually some Sundays where I make fun of my congregation for uh, shushing their kids. Because I'm like, kids are supposed to be loud. They're kids. And the fact that they're comfortable enough in church to make noise, that's the freedom of the gospel. Yeah, because little children come to me. Ask your parents, these kids as grandparents, what it was like growing up in this church when they used to get wrapped on the back of the head for even moving in their pews. Yeah. Do you you think uh, that Jesus, when he was doing his dialogues, was ever interrupted by a kid? <laughs> a kid. Hey, hey, excuse me. How, excuse me. How many times did the disciples stop in mid sentence and go, "Whoa, whoa hold on a second. Um, yeah, I'm not. Fo- I'm not following. Yeah, they're so disruptive, <sighs> right? You had that perfect yeah. sermon all lined up, and then you then you threw them off on a That's tangent, right. kind of like the show, and you know, right. never got to the off point again. Why do you think he's always withdrawing? <laughs> He's an introvert. I don't know. <laughs> he withdrew up to, uh, to a mountain and they followed him. <laughs> He's exhausted. He withdrew out onto the lake in a boat and they yelled for him, come back, Shane, come back. <laughs> nice. So yes, without the simul, without understanding that in your flesh you are nothing but sinner, and yet in Christ through faith you are nothing but righteous, this will not make sense. And a lot of what we're saying is going to offend you mm. because your sacred cows are being trampled. 
But they were so pretty. And melted down into dross. That's right. And then to make you drink it too. And make you drink it. Oh, that's a horrible, horrible passage. What a terrible thing to do. I don't know. I've had Goldschlager oh, before. Oh, did you think that I meant you just... No, now that it's... No, now you drink it. <laughs> but isn't that hot? Shh, shh, don't speak. Just drink. <laughs> that's horrible. Ugh, that's horrible. Mm. But that is the key point is that in your vocation as a Christian, if you don't hold the symbol in the tension, then you'll be confused about your works and you'll mm-hmm. believe that your religious works are different than your other works. And that you have to actually have religious works to prove to God what a good Christian you are. Likewise, then, when you go to church, you won't recognize how you covet God and covet your congregation and covet your pastor and covet your faith, which is a sin. Mm-hmm. Rather than turn to the source, the author and perfecter of your faith and say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Or you won't say things like, I must decrease so that he may increase as a pastor. Yeah. And wearing a gold chasuble, I'm just not quite sure that that says I must decrease. <laughs> as long as it's pretty. I know. That's my own personal thing, though. Again, Pastor David Kine wears the, the, the sweetest gold chasuble you'll ever see. It's fantastic. The man is beautiful. I, I'm partial to copes, especially a black one <laughs> for Good Friday or Ash Wednesday. Oh, sure. I mean, you look like Batman. It's, right? it's beautiful. It's so beautiful. <laughs> it's like you put your arms up and you got the cape and the whole deal. <laughs> Nosferatu is more like it. <laughs> uh, that famous scene from Nosferatu when he comes out of the coffin and raises his arms up. All right, kids, just so you know... Um, it's if you can't make fun of yourself who can you make fun of right we're entertainers not journalists we're entertainers and yes we are making fun of ourselves because although i don't wear a copra chasuble i'm an alb and stole kind of guy you like the liturgical underwear look i really don't but my congregation does so Mm -hmm. it's fabulous i'm i'm more of a cargo shorts and panama (laughs) shirt kind of guy (laughs) whatever is comfortable in fact i'm i I actually tried to wear gi pants the entire summer I, I got an email about a vacancy in the Florida Keys. You fit right in. <gasps> no. Yeah. Summer oh. vacancy. You can go down there and do it like summer ministry, take really? the summer off. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be I'd probably die. I don't I don't think go to, yeah. you're going to like Margaritaville Heaven. I was gonna say the hedonist in me. I, I went to Key West once and there's a reason I only <laughs> went once. It almost killed me that time. That is a different ministry context. That was nineteen ninety four, ninety five. Hmm. Actually right now. I was there right now, 20 plus years ago. 23 this years time, ago. On this mm. day, yeah, I was 20, there. 26 years ago. Yeah, 26 years mm. ago. Yeah, barely got out with my life. But nonetheless. <laughs> um, I will not send you the uh, phone number. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't. Um, six-toed cats everywhere. It's a trip, man. It's a trip. Did you know that? No. Because Hemingway had a six-toed cat that bred with every cat on the island. Oh, and now all of the cats on the island have six toes. All of them. I was going to say like Hemingway. And they're, they're anyway. essentially like cows in India. So you're walking around Key West any, any hour of the day or night. You sit down. These cats just come up to you by the tens. And you're just surrounded. You're like, oh, it's a kitty. And you like, will give them a piece of your burrito. And then all of a sudden, there's a thousand cats around you meowing, rubbing on you. Mm. It's, it's a miracle. Amazing any uh, adjective you want to use it's credible yeah you should send darwin there to study that right and in my youth when i would use hallucinogenics <laughs> being in such a state of mind when literally literally 100 cats surround you outside of a church <laughs> an old spanish mission church in the middle of the night at two o'clock maybe the another reason why i've never gone back hmm. yeah and you don't subscribe to the uh 
the cat Instagram feeds. <laughs> That's right. They trigger me. <laughs> Bad trips. Schrodinger's cat's always been a problem for me. <laughs> so basic thesis, you got to hold the tension because if you don't hold that symbol in tension, you will become reformed in your theology. You really will. You just, it's, that's the default switch, really. When you reject the symbol, you become reformed in your theology. Yeah, visible and invisible get mixed up. Right, you do, yep. Mm -hmm. So Luther does this most explicitly as he denies the antinomian claim to set up in the world a church without sin. Oh, utopia. The platonic ideal of a church, the utopian (laughs) church. A church without sin. Wasn't that that Geneva? Yes. The attempt to set up, well, essentially a secular cloister. Mm-hmm. Right. To establish a church in the world without sin. That's right. Well, at least without cell towers and right. flight patterns and busy streets. Right. The problem yeah. was actually, and you can read this now because there is a guy who did some research on this and wrote a book about it a couple of years ago. Our friend Jack Kilcrease, I think, uh, did a review of it. But um, the more they tried to create this society, the more sinful people became. Oh, Paul had something to say about that, didn't he? In the sense of they acted out. They just did it clandestinely. And so, for example, the number of unwedded mothers giving birth to babies actually increased. The number of people put in jail for public drunkenness increased. Gambling increased. Every, I mean, everybody was in church every to, Sunday. Right? Exactly. And the harsher the threat, the harsher the penalty, it didn't actually curb anything. <laughs> hmm. And this is why in the Schmalkald articles, when Luther writes about the first use, he calls it a failed use. <laughs> Because by attempting to curb sin, you actually increase sin. Well then. Or at least I shouldn't say that. By attempting to curb sin, you increase the desire to go out and do the very thing you're forbidden from doing. Yeah. So in the first place, argues Luther, I'm not an antinomian. I'm not trying to create a church without sin. I'm simply making a distinction between Mm -hmm. the church that is Christ and the church that is earthly. Therefore, in the first place, he argues, the church in the world is mixed, paramixta. And it here includes also the wicked and the hypocrites. There we go. Mm-hmm. There are both wicked people and hypocrites at the Lord's table on Sunday. Hate to tell you. Oops. In fact, there's probably a hypocrite serving you the supper on Sunday. In the second place, and of more fun... Wait a minute. Is that open communion, then? <laughs> it's open to all hypocrites and wicked people. Uh, at least in vis- uh, not visible. Because spiritually even speaking. a hypocrite can confess with his mouth the words mm-hmm. that he is expected to confess. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean he believes them in his heart. I think the large catechism has something to say about this. Oh, I would do that whole thing where you stick your hand in and pull it out. (laughs) That's right. Is it withered? Hmm. In the second place, and of more fundamental importance, even the true members of the church are all sinners. Hmm. You can't create a church without sin because everybody in church is a sinner. Yeah. uh, It does mean that you should actually expect the church to be kind of messy and mixed up and have its... its, uh, not clear edges or boundaries and well that's um, the problem then we just talked about that in relation to geneva is the more you try and lock down your congregation with measures right angles Mm -hmm. choreographing the Mm -hmm. movements the more they're going to act out in a way that causes you to say wait a minute this is not what i this is not what i intended yeah some of the wisest pastoral counsel is to embrace your mistakes in a way you know that um what happened on sunday i don't oh uh, I went into uh, the Lord be with you and with thy spirit, and then it's supposed to be blessed be the Lord at the end, right? Yeah. And, and I don't know. I just went back right back into the communion liturgy. <laughs> right. And I'm like, oh, excuse me. And I laughed. 
And then I said, here, have a benediction. <laughs> Every Sunday I get through the words of institution without screwing them up. I give thanks to God. Yeah, right. But but when you do, it's like, okay, yes. Back uh, up, start over. Wait a minute. Sinner? Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Pastor? Not, not perfect? Oh, right. Absolutely. So take it easy on your organist when he or she makes a mistake yeah. in the, playing don't, the liturgy or playing a hymn. Don't give the evil eye. Yeah. No. Or when the kid acts up or when your pastor flubs. Mm-hmm. So Luther, the, the quote here is, I say, moreover, that the church is to be taught and admonished. I'm speaking of the true holy church, the capitalist mm-hmm. spiritual church. Mm-hmm. The church is to be taught and admonished concerning sin, which is present and still clinging to our flesh. Mm-hmm. But what of the communion of the saints? Is there no holy church without sin? Luther replies with the paradoxical distinctions, which we have already seen in the case of the individual Christian. That is, an individual Christian is simul. Mm-hmm. The church is simul. The church is at the same time, oh, there it is, just and sinful. Again, I retain something. How wonderful. Look at that. To quote Luther, so it is true that the church is pure and that sin is removed, but take care that you distinguish rightly. We are such with reference to Christ, but with reference to ourselves, we struggle perpetually with the devil and the flesh and with all sorts of vice and evil. Yeah. It's kind of like in uh, congregational politics, which is interesting that there'd be politics, right? Uh, well, except they're Speaking sinners. mixed yeah. Uh, congregational politics. So people, I've had people say, how how could a church do that? How could we say that? How could we do that? And you're yeah. like, uh, yeah, sinners. Uh, are you surprised? Or like in a marriage, same story, right? Right. Like somehow, yeah. oh, if it's holy matrimony, then it's going to be perfect. Right. <laughs> like, uh, no. Somebody so, needs to be sued for false advertising when they call it holy matrimony <laughs> if they're looking for visible signs. That's right. That's right. In reference to Christ, right? So I, yes. how's, how's my uh, wedding sermon going to go next week? Something like, hmm, really? Yeah. Only in terms of you forgive each other. Right. That in relation to the bride and the bridegroom, Christ to his church, holy matrimony. Yeah. In relation to you two people, you two sinners... Only in the context of actual forgiveness, mm-hmm. Christ, you know, Christ announced forgiveness, is it holy matrimony? Otherwise, no, this is an unholy, unholy mess. Yeah. yeah. And will continue to be so, and actually might get worse. Because <laughs> you yeah. have kids. <laughs> yeah, bodies change, lives, yeah. lives change. Well, this is a great point. We were doing, uh, we're doing the Ten Commandments. I'm preaching on the Ten Commandments through Lent. Mm. And we did Ninth and Tenth Commandments. We have this Bible study before Compline then. And we were talking about this. And one woman said... She kind of thought of coveting on a belt, like an up and down, like a bell curve. And then as you get older, you don't have as many cravings. Whereas uh, a guy in his 30s said, well, no, it j- we, our cravings just change course. Absolutely. Yep. And then I said, yeah, it's like the analogy of like a river. You can dam a river, but the water doesn't stop moving. It just forms rivulets and flows in different directions. Mm. And so simply stopping coveting one thing, stopping your cravings toward one thing, like, I don't know, giving something up for Lent to prove to God how religious you are. What? And I asked the question, if you give up something that you love more than life itself for 40 days, what do you do on day 41? And one guy's wife, one guy's wife goes, oh, he gets drunk. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Because he gives up beer for Lent. Right. And then on day 41, the day, Easter Sunday, by the way, she pointed out, that's what he does. He gets drunk on Easter Sunday afternoon after church. Kind of like the the whole Fat Tuesday, right? Let's get right. Let's engorge yeah. ourselves right. the day before on punchkis, and then exactly. It's hypocrisy. The, is all it is. It's it's religious hypocrisy. But we do it. Why? Because we have we love our religious works. We but love what did we on talk show. about? Oh, maybe at their beginning they they might have been at a fine. Right. Or Practically good. speaking, it was probably because you were f- poor. 
Or what I were think holy days for? You would fast in order to show give alms. And you would fast in order to give alms, exactly. Mm-hmm. But you, that's great. You know, right. give up something so you can give it to your neighbor. Well, when you Wonderful. have nothing and you're giving up something, that's the widow and her two coins or whatever, three mm. coins. Yeah. Today, when we're so grossly obese, <laughs> go to the refrigerator every five <laughs> minutes to eat more food because we're nutrient starved and our brain is screaming at us. Giving something up for Lent is more like saying, I'm not going to walk to my car to start it because I have a still starting car. <laughs> like, yeah, you you're not probably, giving up anything. You could probably give up everything but water for about 40 days and you'd be just fine. Oh, just fine. Yeah. Well, yeah. Not you. People. Not you. I was going to say, no. Me, <laughs> no, I'd not, probably, not when you're like I, 12% body fat or something. I would wither away. Hmm. But this is such an important point. There's nothing wrong with giving something up for Lent. I'm not mm-hmm. saying there's something wrong with giving up something for Lent. What I'm saying is, don't be a hypocrite and pretend that the motive of your heart isn't to try and prove something to God or to your neighbor mm-hmm. and simply own it and say, you know what? You don't have to give something up to prove that you're covetous, that you crave, not just to give something up but because it's a bad habit or it's destructive to you physically, emotionally, whatever, but that you crave God's good graces. You covet God's grace. Mm. This is the symbol. At the same time, we crave, we hunger and thirst for righteousness, which is good. Because it's pointing us to Christ, we covet righteousness. We covet our hungering and thirsting for righteousness because it proves we're Christian. Mm. And then we can say to those who don't, ha, I'm a Christian and you're not. Yeah, It's like taking credit for your religious works. Taking credit for doing good works means you covet your good works. Therefore, they're not good works. <laughs> uh, so that's sin too? That is a sin. And pointing out how other people aren't doing the good works you're doing is sin <laughs> because you're basically saying to God, my neighbor's not doing the works that you gave him to do because they don't agree with my perception of what a good work is. Are they not liturgical enough? Are they right? Which they again, don't sing per- the right perception hymns. is protection. You're simply trying to protect yourself from judgment because you don't actually believe in grace. Riley doesn't wear a chasuble. I don't wear a chasuble. I don't. Some but people. I will, I am, I am, like I said, I'm, I'm leaning towards gi pants this summer for sure. Black gi pants. And I found out the vacancy doesn't have air conditioning. So, oh um, yeah. You're going to want to go with shorts underneath the, I'm uh, going to, I'm going to, well, I'm going to rethink the whole vestment thing here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're going to want to get like calf high socks and then shorts. Uh-huh. I've done maybe that some, before. Maybe I've some running before. shorts, even the running, the high cut, the high cut up the thigh running shorts. Well, I was thinking of like some kind of like modified Franciscan garb. So instead of like the sure. full robe, yeah. just, just, just the like shag shorts and <laughs> there a, we sandals. Go. <laughs> yeah, I like it. I like it. Oh, I know. <laughs> just like the Techno Viking. There we go. <laughs> Shout out. Call back. <laughs> uh, no, it is true though. When you're talking about a congregation, um, you know, there's so much that we want to point to, like the behavior of the congregation, and somehow it's going to be right and pure, and we can make it. We can make it good. Yes. Yeah, yeah, no, it's more messy than that. That's foolishness. It's useless. Mm. And mm. ultimately, you're trying to annihilate another person because you don't care about their needs. You don't care about their need for the gospel or for forgiveness. You mm. don't realize because you choose not to that all good works are the fruit of the gospel, the fruit of faith. And that the Holy Spirit, in his grace, will give each of us work to do in our vocations to which he's called us to do, our various graces that he gives us. And therefore, who are you to stand and say to God, that's not a good work? When, as Luther says how many times, God always does his work under the sign of the opposite. Yeah. 
So that what we call evil, God calls good, and what we call good, God calls a damnable sin, a mortal yeah. sin. Yeah. Heidelberg. So practically speaking, you know, in, in pastoral practice, you'd say, if somebody came up to you and said, you know, this is this is what I'd like to do, um, right. you know, and it's it's socially acceptable, it's it, it will benefit the neighbor, you know, obvious in some obvious way. You say, okay, right? I'm you're not going to go around saying to people, no, 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 that's not right. You can't do it that way. Um, we've never done that before, um, but then there's also this whole idea of like we can somehow presume to know what the church should look like, right? Right. And or like we even remember actually what it used to look right. like. Well, two things on that note: one, don't look at someone's life; listen to someone's confession. Mm-hmm. That's right. Their their behavior and their actions may contradict their confession, but the confession comes from the heart. Mm. And I've used this example before. I've got grumpy old farmers who are 10 inches of callus over their entire body. And when you listen to them talk and the way that they act, you'd, you'd think that they don't have an, a drop of love hmm. for anything or anybody. And yet you give them a baby and they get wet around the eyes. And that's something. That, yeah. And I've seen this too with hardened alcoholics. I've seen where alcoholics have been caught in an intervention and gotten harder and harder with every single person who reads their their intervention paper. And then the grandchild walks up, takes his hand and says, grandpa, I don't want you to die. Mm -hmm. And they just shatter, literally just physically shatter. They begin weeping. And then they're like, I'm ready. And you can't look at a person's life. You got to listen. And pastorally, I think that's the key. If, because I, again, I, I minister to primarily people who work with their hands, blue collar people. These are rough people. These are people that take no BS and, and don't suffer fools. To look at the way that they live their life and the way that the, their leisure activity is spent and so forth, their hobbies, not a lot of sanctification. Mm-mm. Or to their, maybe to their annual giving to the congregation. Right. And yet, yeah. those are the people that show up at every Bible study, not mm-hmm. just on Sundays, but on Tuesdays, every other week, and on Wednesdays during Lent. They show up at every Bible study. They're always raising their hand, asking questions. Yeah. Some yeah. of the hardest customers you'll ever meet. Yeah. And yet, when it comes to the matter of the gospel, they're there. And that should be enough. Because the reason they're so hard is because the world has hardened them. Mm-hmm. And the gospel turns their heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And they hear it and they go, more of that. Because I don't get that anywhere else. Because surprise, surprise, the Farmer's Almanac, farmer's almanac is not usually right. right. <laughs> That's right. Oops. But then lastly, too, or secondly, what is the sum of the law? It is love. Mm-hmm. Love God, love your neighbor. I don't, and I, I know I've talked about this, I think, before on the show. When we talk about the law, the commandments, good works, we don't talk about love and kindness toward our neighbors. We just talk about religious work. Yeah. What kind of religious looking works are you doing versus, as you pointed out, and love in the, in the way of selflessness. Mm-hmm. Right. Selfless love means self-annihilating love. It means your needs take precedent over my needs yeah. in the present tense. And that... Kindness is really the point of life. Um, I think I, I sent you the trailer for that Mr. Rogers documentary. No. There's a, a trailer. You can watch it on YouTube. Uh, there's a Mr. Rogers documentary coming out. I started crying during the during the trailer. It, hmm. Like, again, you want to talk about cracking me open. Because one, nostalgia just like a tidal wave washed over me because I grew up on Mr. Rogers. Yeah, Frank and, Rogers, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... This documentary is amazing because it talks about his point of teaching children that um, it's not our differences, but 
um, it's, it's, we shouldn't be looking for differences, but rather we should look for the things that we share in common that unite us. Yeah. That's really the purpose of life. And that he said his entire show was about teaching kids that love and kindness and unity is the purpose of life. Huh. Like that's the goal of life is love and kindness and unity. I was like, oh my God, that's vocation. Like he just summed up vocation. Like his whole show was essentially, I'm going to teach you how, I'm going to teach you about Christian vocation. Wow. But do it in a way that applies to all people, regardless of whether they're Christians or not. And he has some connection to the Christian church, right? He was a minister. Yeah. Before he started the show. Presbyterian, maybe? I think Presbyterian, yeah. 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 Started his show in Pittsburgh. That's something. And it just caught. It just caught. Yeah. It's the trailer is just, oh, if you grew up in that generation, yeah. I get choked up talking about it now. Mm. But Fred really, Rogers, that's, not Frank. Fred, not Frank. Fred. Frank was probably his stepbrother. Mm. <laughs> Frank Stallone, maybe you're thinking died of him. Died of stomach cancer. Yep. Uh, Presby- ordained Presbyterian minister. Yep. yep. And so you want to talk about figuring out a way to carry out your Christian vocation in the world, how to edify people. He did it. And I think that's what's most often missing. There's a, a song by Perfect Circle that's out right now called Talk Talk. And the point of the, and again, Maynard being an atheist and yet really nailing it when it comes to the hypocrisy of, uh, we'll pray for you, Hmm. where he says, you talk like Jesus, but you don't act like Jesus. You don't suffer like Jesus. All you do is talk, 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 talk. And so you'll pray, you'll say, I'll pray for you while you step over all of these corpses, Hmm. but you won't act like Jesus. You won't stop and pick the leper up. You won't stop and sit down with the prostitute and tax collector. You won't stop and speak to the person in prison, clothe the, clothe the naked, give a drink to the thirsty, feed the hungry. But you'll say, I'll pray for you. Yeah. And that's how sin and, is manifest in us. Right. Is that there's nothing more important than praying for our neighbor, for sure. Praying in faith. And there's nothing more sinister, probably more satanic than saying it when we don't actually have any intent whatsoever. It's just our escape hatch. Yeah. Because there's no love and kindness behind saying, I'll pray for you, and then you don't. Or I think we talked about this in the last podcast. Just do it right there. Mm, Put your hands on their head. Put your hands on their shoulders. Squat down in the dirt with them and pray with them right there. Ask them, are you baptized? And then preach to them. That's John Kleinick, right? Make intercession. Right. It's it's an apostolic injunction, but also um, never leave somebody without a blessing. Well, and as Jesus himself says, um, I'm with them, not with you. So therefore, if you step over that person, you're stepping over me. Mm. And so if you're too busy to squat down in the gutter and pray with that person or preach the gospel of that person when they ask you to stop, you are stepping over Jesus, actually. He's already in the world. He's with them Mm. in prison, in the gutter, in the dirt, at the table, waiting. Yeah, it's like we were chatting on uh, yesterday. You know, it's not a job only it's a it's a vocation it's a calling right it's right. a it's your identity it's part of your right. identity so yeah if i wasn't to paid be... to be a pastor and someone asked me to pray with them i'd still pray with them i did that before i was a pastor i stopped i would sit and evangelize people before i was a pastor i preached the gospel to people before i was yeah. a pastor did bible studies before i was a pastor yeah the only thing that, that shifted is now i get paid to do it when i think there's a way that that we've maybe unintentionally shifted into a new kind of clericalism right mm-hmm. that, that these are the only these are only jobs pastors can do uh, right. I had I had this happen again. It happens frequently. They're like, "Well, pastor's job is to is to give catechism class." I'm like, "Right." Well, what do you understand catechism class to be? <laughs> right. And they're like, "Well, you're going to teach them the Bible." And I'm like, um, "I can, but I understand As the, head of the house." <laughs> yeah, I understand that not only in Luther's catechism, but also you know the scriptures uh, that's given to the parents and the father yeah. especially. And 
um, that I'm glad to fill in the, 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 the empty spaces, you know, the things yeah. that got missed or, but really that can only happen by me examining, which I am given to do as pastor, right? Well, uh, you, we could spend an entire show just talking about the fatherless church. Well, that's true. Well, maybe we should line that up. We should maybe. I think we have a context where we could do that. I was going to say, we could certainly go to Scott Keith's book Mm -hmm. or uh, Rod Rosenblatt's got an entire uh, essay about that. Yeah. Well, we have fathers, just what kind? Uh, Not in my church. We don't have a lot of fathers showing up of a certain generation. Well, not fathers fathers in an orthodox sense. I'll say this, though. Of the tail end of the the Gen Xers and the front end of the millennials, they show up for their kids in church Mm. every Sunday. They do by and large. It's the boomers that don't. Wow. Almost 100% don't. Wow. And they'll show up. They won't even show up at Christmas anymore. Wow. Maybe Easter, because, you know, if there's breakfast, they'll, they'll show up for Easter if there's cinnamon rolls. But no, we, we, we have been suffering under a fatherless church for cheapers going on 200 years now, even hmm. more, close to 300 years. Hmm. And obviously, we have not cracked the code. Nope. So Luther makes the same point more briefly in the lectures on Galatians 1531. Luther writes, and I believe in the Holy Church, that is, in the church I see no death, no sin, but merely holy Christians, not sinners, nor guilty to death, living forever, holy and just as Christ. This I see by faith. But when I turn my eyes the other way, there I see my brother distressed and sinning. And is the church therefore not holy? I deny the conclusion. If I look at my own person, it is never holy. If I look at Christ, then it is holy. For the sins of the whole world do not exist where we are looking. Wow. There you go. Why do you see your brother's sins? Because you're not looking at Christ. Hmm. Why do you not show love and kindness to your brother? Because you don't see Christ in your neighbor. Yeah. Well, it's looking inside instead of looking out, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's why, why would you annihilate your neighbor, whether as a pastor, a husband, a father, a student, co-worker why annihilate your neighbor because you don't see christ in your neighbor you don't see them as the hands and masks of god yeah. or run them we, off or right or uh, yeah run them off or them. step over them shun them mm-hmm. seek out ways to actually ex- like actively try and excommunicate them mm. because you try and um filter them out because they're they're just they don't belong in this congregation kind of stuff yeah. um, people have a versus, way of doing that on their own right Right, exactly. If if a person is bent on destruction, just th- just stay out of their way. They'll run off the cliff by themselves. You don't need to push them mm-hmm. because actually, if you get in their way, they'll just take you with them over the cliff. That's what'll happen. Yep. But just be patient and be open to the possibility that you're not in control. You're the instrument, not the musician. You don't get to call the tune. The rider determines where the horse goes. The horse doesn't get to do that. To quote the psalm and. Yep. Um, this is really the key point then is that too often, I'm guilty of this too, obviously, we're all guilty of this, I see my congregation as sinners and only sinners. And therefore, when I'm down, mm-hmm. I expect the worst from them. Yeah. So then when they come to me and they say what I anticipate because I've already written the script, my response isn't, you got to come to the Lord's table. My response is, oh, for really? Really? Again? How m- Oh, I you know I don't I I just can't even talk about this right now. Yeah. And then I go home and start cussing and swearing. I don't do it like I used to because I have an outlet now. Um, but I know in the first five years, seven years that I was here, I've been here ten years now. So yeah, about the first five to seven. Yeah. Um, about every four or five months, I'd have one of those episodes hmm. where someone would do something, and I'd say again, 
really <laughs> yeah i think uh my practice at least i've had to adopt it just to help me with this is is to only actually to only call them saints because the yeah. sinner part's pretty evident most right. of the time <laughs> but, yeah but the saint part isn't and and so to to use the name um or christian or beloved or you know there's different ways to kind of indicate that like the apostle does yeah but you know as a as much for my sake as for theirs is to say right. this is how i regard you despite right. everything well I, that's a great point that's why i refer to everybody as brother and sister hmm? same idea yeah it is it, it's you know people are like oh it's so kind i'm like eh, it's actually a reminder to myself <laughs> mm-hmm. that this is who you are in reality and that my perception of you is not reality and therefore it's a mnemonic device to basically force me out of my own selfish heart of course you could uh, do a little virtue signaling if you want and just say sisters and brothers <laughs> I could, but I'm not a virtuous man. So. Mm-hmm. You give signals, well, though. Do I? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll try and do better. <laughs> but uh, what are you listening to this week? What kind of music are you listening to? What did I? I sent it to you, didn't I? Um, you did. Yeah. You know, I don't have my phone with me, shockingly. Oh, what did I, what did I listen to that I really enjoyed? Uh, I got stuck on live live at UCLA, Charles Mingus. Oh, nice! That album. Um, I mean, it, it's and it's so. It's such a great window into uh, the nature of the civil rights movement. What was going on right. in, in the world yeah. at that time? I mean, and yeah. and his music. It's it's not exactly the most uh, approachable. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's challenging even for a jazz listener, but or player, musician. Yeah. Uh, I think it was challenging for them to play even. But on the flip side, uh, it has that kind of chaos yeah. being tamed slightly right. enough that we can play it which yeah. i think is probably what it was like to live in that world so, oh for sure especially yeah. mingus's world in his mind oh i know you uh read his biography and so forth it's yeah rough <laughs> rough time so that was one so i am here. listening this week to ozo motley i've gone back and started listening to ozo motley again mm. o-z-o-m-a-t-l-i ozo motley they are they're kind of the children of Woodstock era Santana. Oh, okay. Yeah. And yet they incorporate reggae, ska, North African beats and rhythms and tonalities, um, cumbia, and they're amazing live. The rap, they incorporate so rap. Is that, would you call it world music then? I guess, technically, because they don't, they're their own genre. Yeah. For sure. Um, they come out of LA. Yeah, South LA, I think. Yeah. And so, yeah, their roots are, their early stuff is definitely heavily influenced by Woodstock era Santana. You can hear it, especially in the guitars. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of Southern LA, Southern California, Northern Mexico sound that was coming out in what, the early 2000s, late 90s? Yeah. And they're amazing live. You listen to their live album, and like you were saying with Mingus, the there a person's a true musical ability really comes out live in a way that you really can't capture on a on a record like a studio album mm. and there's just certain bands like Ozo Motley um Santana in his day there's just certain bands that when you hear them live it's just it's another level yeah. from their studio albums and you realize how this band was created to perform in front of a, an audience not make an album in a studio and so the interplay between the audience and the band in those live recordings really is what lifts it to that next level. Yeah, and you can do that when you have that. That, uh, that sort of genre 
you know, yeah. which is not genre. <laughs> yeah. So you can, so there's like a freeform kind of character to it, right? There really is. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, I'm going to recommend a podcast. I don't normally recommend podcasts, but I'm going to okay. recommend this podcast. And again, it's called Ding. the Jiu-Jitsu Brotherhood. <laughs> I knew I knew it. I was just waiting for it. Uh, Nick Gurriatis. Uh, he's South African. He's since relocated to the States. He lives in New Mexico with his fiance. Uh, there are 30-minute episodes. I think I actually forwarded you the one from this week. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I bring it up is that he interviews other black belts and most of their conversation has nothing to do with jujitsu, actually, but uh-huh. rather how jujitsu has informed the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. And it's a cliche and it's an inside joke within the jujitsu community. It's not a sport, it's a lifestyle. But it is, that's just what happens if, if you dedicate yourself to jujitsu. It, it basically takes your entire life because you can't really be unhealthy and, and do this. And well, you could start there maybe, but you won't. Yeah, you don't last very long. I've seen guys who come into the to come into the academy at 290 pounds, and within a year and a half are down to 190 pounds. Mm-hmm. And but it does it changes it's changed everything about my life in every way, shape, or form for sure. And what Gregoriatis does in the Jiu-Jitsu Brotherhood is he talks with these black belts, and so he talked with a Marine. This guy is a black belt. He's a career Marine, three marriages. Um, teaches, works with the military still in teaching self-defense and stuff. And he primarily just talks about being married and being in the military and, and what jujitsu has taught him about that. And then the last episode, uh, the guy, he trains policemen. He trains, he goes around the world and, and lectures and does seminars for policemen on, on hand-to-hand combat because a lot of police have only rudimentary hand-to-hand combat skills. I think I, is this the guy that Bourdain interviewed on his show? Had him on his be. show? Yeah, because be. uh, he was showing like knife skills. So um, because you can't carry a, a gun in the UK. Right, so, right. Yeah, so showing just how to disarm somebody um, with a knife. That's what it was. Yeah, well, it could be. This is No, this guy's from Torrance, actually. This okay. black belt is from Torrance, California. Mm-hmm. And the Gracies, their main academy, their original academy was in Torrance, the famous garage in Torrance where everything started. Uh, they travel the country and they have this program where they train police. Mm-hmm. They have an anti-bullying jiu-jitsu program that's geared towards youth. They have a women. Uh, jiu-jitsu program that's geared towards teaching women self-defense and how to protect themselves. And yeah. essentially what they've done is taking jiu-jitsu and said, what's essential for this child to know to protect themselves from bullying yet be fully immersed in jiu-jitsu, likewise for women, likewise for policemen. Yeah. So rather than having to do 12 years of jiu-jitsu, can we do like this seminar to get the fundamentals down and then they can work with someone local who's a Gracie instructor who can carry this forward then for them. Somehow I listened to an interview with those guys. These are the grandsons, right? I listened, yeah, the brand I, interview I sent you, right? Oh, I think I listened to it without you prompting me. The I don't know. The brand interview? Yeah, maybe. But they were Under talking the about it. Yeah, it was a matter of language. It's the same yes. technique, but it's a matter yes, of communicating. Exactly. Yes. In your context, here's how this works. It reminded right. me a lot of preaching. It's like the essential oh, truth is the like same. like teaching Bible study. If you teach Bible study to your congregation versus another congregation even, mm-hmm. you really have to temper your – and then if you teach to non-Christians mm-hmm. or right. you teach to college students versus – you know, you're always you, – like you said, you're always checking your language and figuring out how can I – how can I refine this down, reduce this down to its essential parts, and then express it in a way that they can understand it and, and be excited by it and, and appreciate it? Yeah, because underlying, I mean, underlying, you have a sense of its value, that you right, know it's exactly. valuable and you know it has universal value, or yeah. at least you believe that. And so then right. now you should be able to adapt it. And, and for me, on this whole topic of the Jiu-Jitsu Brotherhood, this podcast— be curious and and go and listen to podcasts and read books and and watch videos and documentaries and so forth 
about things that you have absolutely no knowledge whatsoever. Be curious and just go, I'm going down this rabbit hole. Yeah. Because you may discover stuff in the context of like jujitsu, for example, that actually points you to something in your own life, like what we were just talking about, that you listen to a podcast about jujitsu and all of a sudden you're like, oh, this could actually be applied to my teaching and something that there's a gap in my teaching. Yeah. Or in my vocation, I watched this documentary about something that has nothing to do with me and yet there was that nugget within there that I went, oh, the whole subtext of the documentary is really just about family and the relationship of parents to children. And now I can actually build off of this and go in this direction. And and so that brings me to the book that I'm, re- I'm reading. I, I sent you the links to uh, Sasha Simel. Uh, the original title was El Tiguero. And then in the UK, it's called Jungle Fury, which is obviously such a better title than El Tiguero. Tiguero which means the tiger, uh, but he was a jaguar hunter. Um, what's that? Orcas? Orca. And... <laughs> no idea. Asimo uh, Orca. Orca. Um, Simo was the first white man to be given the title of tiger hunter. Orca. Um, and what th- these guys were hunters that were hired by like ranchers to go kill jaguars with a spear. <laughs> it's a seven foot spear and we're talking about 140 to 180 pound animals wow. we're talking about big animals that kill that drag down and kill cattle right right so you're going into the jungle you're going into their house with a seven foot spear and nothing else no guns no shields nothing and you're hunting them while they're hunting you <laughs> and this guy this sasha Simel, who was latvian by descent mm-hmm. argentinian american by birth claims to have killed over a hundred. I think it's a hundred. Maybe it was 300, but at least a hundred jaguars. And so there's this book written about him called uh, Jungle Fury, El Tiguero. And then they tried to make a film about it. John Wayne was actually going to star in it in the 50s. But at that time, South America was so dangerous, especially the jungle, that the companies, the the movie company said, you can't, no, you can't. Like it, You cannot do this movie. And there was a guy then though that went down there and did all this preparation. He actually lived with these these, this tribe, got to know them, bonded with them, left and said, I'll see you in a couple months, never went back because the, the whole project was scuttled, and then goes back 40 years later mm-hmm. with one of my favorite directors ever, Jim Jarmusch. Yeah. And so there's a film called uh, Tiguero, a film that was never made with Jim Jarmusch and this director, where they go back and they go and track down this tribe. And it's fascinating because the the guy shows the footage that he shot of the village to the villagers on this TV. And the villagers are freaking out because they're seeing their grandparents, their parents, they're seeing people Uh, from their tribe, right? And the whole, it's kind of a buddy road trip movie (laughs) because of Jarmish in the Sky. And yet it's also- And that's Jarmish, yeah. Yeah, he's a, yeah. Well, he's a young, he's basically like a super laid back California dude in a Ramones t-shirt when this was made. So super chill, right? And- then this direct, then the guy that he goes with, and I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he died three years after this documentary was made. Yeah, Korosmaki. So Korosmaki's three years away from death. So he's on the other end of the spectrum. And they, so it's a buddy road trip movie. It's about looking at the effects of, of progress on this village over 40 years. Mm-hmm. And it's also about uh, a lost world, so to speak. Yeah. That there was this place at one time that was just too dangerous to go into and now you just take a plane get off the plane you get in a boat you go down the river in the boat and they're like hey tourists right it's a different world it is and that's happened in 40 years 
And so it's it's a very interesting meditation as far as the documentary goes. It's like 75 minutes or something. Hmm. Um, but the book is called Jungle Fury. It was written like 52. And it's a fascinating book because the great thing about books written in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, especially adventure books, adventure biographies is, they're so obviously not concerned with the facts <laughs> in a right. journalistic sense, right. so much as just telling a really ripping yarn. The facts are in there for sure. But so much of the facts are just anecdotal from the person who experienced them. So you don't know if he's a pathological <laughs> liar or not. Right. I don't think Siebel was. He actually retired to Pennsylvania and there, until he died, there was a museum where he kind of stored all of his stuff so that people could come and see what he had done. So there was like documented pictures and hides and all these things back before PETA was, you know, running loose. But it was just a fascinating story about this white dude who went down into the jungle and became a jaguar hunter. And lived this life and then toured the world speaking on behalf of conservation and wildlife. Hmm. It's fascinating. And I can't it recommend is. Jim Jarmusch's films enough. I mean, it's it's certainly a, a would you say? A, acquired taste. Acquired taste. There we go. <laughs> it, for I, The first time I saw Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai with Forrest Whitaker, which is still one of my favorite movies ever because RZA does the soundtrack for it. Um, it's a modern samurai story right, with a black dude who keeps pigeons who is going to seek revenge on this mob. But it's told in the way of a samurai movie, right? Yeah. And Jarmusch's way with dialogue, Jarmusch's way with uh, cinematography, how he does it. Mm-hmm. Um, I love everything Jim Jarmusch does, really. Uh, Dead Man with Johnny Depp, which is his base, his version of a Western. I love it. What was the black There's, and white thing with the coffee? I think it was called Three Coffees or something, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, something like Three that. Co- or coffee and cigarettes or cigarettes and coffee, coffee and, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, coffee and cigarettes. Coffee and cigarettes, which is mostly just ad-libbed. Uh-huh. He was just like, I wonder what would happen if I put these two people together. Yeah, exactly. And Tom and Waits Bill with Mur- whoever. I, I can't remember. Yeah, but Jack White's in it. Bill Murray's in it. Tom Waits is in it. Steve Buscemi, I think, is, might be yeah, in it. Maybe. I can't remember all the guys in it. But I, just, I love Jim Jarmusch's movies. I like the tone. I like movies that are quiet with explosive moments, right? Mm-hmm. There's a new film, uh, there's a new movie on Netflix. Um, uh, who played the Joker in Suicide Squad? He's also the lead singer for 30 Seconds to oh, Mars. Oh, Jared Leto. Jared Leto is the star. And it's about this white dude right after the Second World War in Japan. Hmm. And he maybe has 10 words of dialogue, 10 lines of dialogue in the entire movie. Wow. And the movie is very quiet. There's whole pieces of the movie that have no soundtrack to it. And... The great thing is they don't force the Japanese actors to speak English very often. So maybe, again, 10 lines of English are spoken by Japanese people throughout the movie, but otherwise the entire movie is in Japanese. And what I appreciated about the way the film was made was if you have an English-speaking guy who doesn't really speak Japanese in a world where everybody speaks Japanese and it's after the war, some of the younger Japanese people might speak some broken English because of all the presence of the Americans, but the older generation isn't going to speak it and they're not going to want to speak it. Right. Mm-hmm. And therefore there's going to be, cause I, again, I lived in Mexico and Central America. When you're in a world where you don't really speak fluently the language, there are long, long periods of silence because you don't know what to say and you can't speak it. And they're not speaking to you mm-hmm. because they don't speak your language. And the movie really captures that. Yeah, that and awkward doesn't, silence, right? That awkward silence and doesn't ruin it by adding a soundtrack. And trying mm-hmm. to manipulate your emotions. It, the director of the movie just lets it stand. Yeah, is that The, the Outsider? The Outsider, thank you. I thought that's what it was. Mm-hmm. And so when there is violence in the movie, it's explosive. And it's shocking because it just happens. And you're like, whoa. You kind of get lulled into a sense of comfort. 
by yeah. the silence. Because he ends up uh, in the Yakuza, right? Yes. It's okay. a it's a really, really good movie. But yet again, I think a lot of people are going to hate it. Yeah. Because it is quiet and they don't explain anything to you. The narrative explains the movie. Yeah. Well, recently you had, uh, you had, you had Scorsese's film, The Silence, right? Yeah. It's the same idea. Same just, idea, exactly. You know, just it's long. Like, yeah. Well, it's treat, in the, it's the, in the subject like material. Yeah. Right. And the subject material was intense. Yeah. But I just, I appreciate movies like that. I watched mm-hmm. a Western recently like that too, of just long periods of silence. And mm-hmm. let the cinematographer do his job and tell a story in pictures. Don't need a soundtrack to manipulate your emotions. Just let the audience feel what they feel. And then when there's moments of violence or there's moments of action or there's dialogue, it heightens it. It actually adds to it, right? It amplifies it. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I appreciate that about Jarmusch's films is that they're quiet films. And then there's more, but his films are kind of like his personality, kind of laid back, kind of chill, and yet intense, mm. <laughs> can be intense. So yeah, Jim Jarmusch, El Tiguero, Sasha Seamel. I had another recommendation. I remember Fury. my other one. What's that? Uh, which is Fear of a Blank Planet by Porcupine Tree. It's an nice. older album now, but uh, the subject material corresponds pretty well with what we were talking about, about, you know, um, kids and empty, especially white um, boys having kind of an empty life. Yeah. And uh, a lot of that because they're medicated and, and self-medicated with um, with whatever. Yeah, um, right. Not just pills, but uh, uh, video games or whatever it yep. is, just trying to find substitutes. It was back in the right. 90, late 90s, but is that right? When did it come out? Uh, yeah, 2004, maybe, early 2000s. Yeah, so, I think early 2000s. But, uh, you know, lyrically, it's it's pretty poignant still. Yeah. yeah. I like it. Living that empty life. And lastly, I'm going to give a shout out. This is a future shout out. My five-year-old mm. son, Hillel, is taking care of himself while I'm recording this so that I can record this. And... Uh, so I'm super impressed with his maturity at five years old that I asked him if he could take care of himself while I do this because mom had to go to the store and then pick up the other kids from from school and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. in the future, when you're listening to this, Halal, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. And if the I robots appreciate... haven't destroyed it. <laughs> well, the human, ha- the human part of you that's left, Halal, I really appreciate that you did this for me today so we could get this done. Uh, <laughs> nice. Whatever hasn't been turned into a cyborg <laughs> or plugged into the Matrix. But, and I think, uh, again, I think everybody who listens to this podcast and all the encouragement that we're getting, all mm-hmm. the positive feedback, and as we pointed out uh, in the 45, 43-minute mark, uh, leave positive reviews for us. If there's something you'd like us to read, let us know, text us, email us, whatever it may be. Subscribe, support, go to the Higher Things website page, uh, click that button if you want to support us financially because the gospel is free, but producing this podcast is not. Mm-mm. along with all the other materials. Uh, go listen to the Gospel Boldly podcast, Solid Exegesis. I look forward to it every week. Yep. I appreciate Pastors Brown and Mr. Lemke for that. And um, buy Gillespie's coffee. He has children to feed. He uh, might be moving soon, so he needs got to pay for those moving expenses. Uh, somehow, yeah. We'll somehow, it out. some way. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, the prospect of moving a business into Illinois is not really uh, – yeah. I'm not looking forward to that. <laughs> good, luck, good luck with those tax breaks. Yeah, that's right. The social state of Illinois. Lack of. <laughs> <laughs> they might as well – yeah. They might as well just come with a picture of a government worker with a gun pointed at you. <laughs> the only thing worse than probably moving to Illinois, uh, moving a business to Illinois, is moving into Cook County. No, worse than that, moving into the Chicago city limits. I was going to say, Yeah. <laughs> So you've got three levels of taxation on top of good each other. Times. Actually, Real four good levels, times. right? Federal, state, yeah. county, and city. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. 
That's when that's when you, you when you go in the basement and you hope nobody notices. Right. I think we just circled completely back around to the beginning of this podcast. <laughs> doomed. We're doomed. <laughs> oh, might as well just dress up like a techno Viking and go doom, marching doom, in the doom, street. Doom, doom, doom. Go watch Invader Zim. <laughs> doom, 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 doom. That's right. That's just to be a techno Viking. Let it all hang out. That's Dance right. like there's no tomorrow. All right, brothers and sisters, thanks for listening. Come back uh, next week for a brand new podcast. And as always, I hope we pass the audition. See ya. Do you like what you're listening to? Higher Things podcasts are free for you, but they aren't free to produce. Please consider supporting the Higher Things podcasts as Lutheran as it gets gospeled boldly and the black cloister check out www.higherthings.org support for more information thank you for listening and thank you for your support you summoned me dr frankenstein indeed i did igor I wanted to tell you that I'm retiring from the business of monster creation to do something that requires even more genius. What's that, Doctor? Coffee roasting, Igor. There are so many wonderfully complex variables to busy my intellect with. Try the end product, Igor. It's brilliant and delicious. Not bad, Doctor. But have you considered just ordering your coffee pre-roasted? Preposterous, Igor. No one else has the scientific attention to detail that this enterprise requires. What about coffee by Gillespie? Coffee by Gillespie? Christopher Gillespie is a master at selecting high-quality specialty coffee beans that are as sustainable as they are tasty. And to roast them to their finest, he uses traditional techniques combined with the latest technology. Something a scientist like you should appreciate, Doctor. Indeed, indeed. But the coffee, Igor, is it any good? Everything about coffee by Gillespie is done with taste in mind. Gillespie even ships your coffee directly to your address, so it doesn't lose its delectable flavor sitting on the store shelf. You've convinced me, Igor. Coffee by Gillespie clearly has me beat for coffee know-how. Where may I get some? Just go online to gillespie.coffee and order any time. Let it be done, Igor. But opt for the decaf. Frankie can be a handful when he's had too much caffeine. Coffee by Gillespie. It's brilliant and it's delicious.